today's topic is the five aggregates. And for someone who would, isn't familiar with the Buddhist teachings, it sounds more like a topic that we would have in a civil engineering course. <laughs> Especially when we talk about the five clinging aggregates. It's the aggregates you would put on a roadside hill, a roadside, on a hillside. And that's not just an idle joke, because back in the time of the Buddha, when he first talked about the khandas, he was using the word in a way that nobody had ever heard of before. Khanda meant mass, meant a pile of things. Um, a tree trunk was also called a khanda. This part of your body, the sort of the, the bulk of your shoulder, was also called a khanda. And the question would be, why would he use this term to analyze suffering? Why would he make it one of the basic concepts in his teaching? So that's one of the topics we're going to be considering today. And it is, though, one of the basic topics in What the Buddha Taught. And I've always thought that in addition to the book, What the Buddha Taught, there should be another book, How the Buddha Taught, another one, Why the Buddha Taught. Because <laughs> otherwise it just sounds strange. You know, the Buddha teaches there are four, four noble truths, five hindrances, um, seven factors of awakening, and you say, well, why aren't there five noble truths? Why aren't there three hindrances? Why does he teach the way he does? And I think it's important for us to try to think ourselves back to the position of the Buddha right after his awakening, before he decided he wanted to teach and had come up with a particular approach to how he would teach. There's a passage in the canon that describes him as, after his awakening, sitting there experiencing the bliss of awakening, and then he surveyed the Buddha, the spirit surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. And what did he see with the eye of a Buddha? He saw people burning with suffering. He said, burning with the many fevers, burning with the many sufferings, born of passion, aversion, and delusion. And in approaching the question of how he would get people to stop burning, you have to look at how he analyzed the results of suffering. And they come down to two. He says, when people suffer, there are two, two responses. The first one is they're bewildered. Why is there this suffering? What's going on? And the second response is a search to find a way out. This is the normal reaction that people have when they're suffering. It's because suffering is so complex that we're bewildered. If suffering was something very easy to analyze, we'd analyze it, be done with it, and go on to the next topic. But you realize, because it's complex, people are bewildered, and they're searching for a way out. It usually means that because they're bewildered, they're asking, asking the wrong questions. They're looking in the wrong place. And so the purpose of his teaching was to redirect people's ability to question. You know, this desire for a way out. How can you reframe that in such a way so that instead of coming from bewilderment and causing more ignorance, which of course leads to more suffering, how can you take this tendency that people have to ask questions and direct it in the proper way? That that was his main initial task. And so instead of just looking at you know, the Buddha's answers to questions, you ask, well, what kind of questions was he asking? How did he frame the question in such a way to come to the end of um, suffering? And this tendency we have to ask the wrong questions, the Buddha called inappropriate attention. The Pali term is ayoni so manasigara, which means paying attention in the wrong way, looking at things not from the root causes but from some other, some other point of view, which is going to just mess things up. And he said that the primary wrong question is, who am I? Do I have a self? Or you could rephrase it either as, what am I? That would also be a, a wrong way of asking a question. 
And the question, of course, is, well, why is that a wrong way? And his answer was that if you try to identify, uh, define yourself before you deal with the issue of suffering, you limit yourself. You're placing limitation on what your idea of what you are is, what your idea of what you can be is, what your idea of what is possible in, the li in, in life gets limited by the way you define yourself. And so he recommends putting the question aside. Um, which is interesting because for many of us we've heard, and it's not just you know, ignorant Americans, but also you know, British people, Asian people, scholars who specialized in the topic, there's long been the theory that the khandhas, or the five aggregates, or the Buddhist question, answered the question, what is a person? And we're told that you know, there is no permanent self, but what is a person? And then they come up with the five aggregates. They say, this is what a person is. And there are several parts in the canon where the Buddha explicitly says, this is the wrong kind of question to ask. So it means we're taking his teaching, which is meant for it to be used in line with another question, and using it for the purpose, you know, for, to answer a question that he said would be best put aside. Because no matter how you answer the question of who you are or what you are, you're putting limitations on yourself. If you identify with a particular thing or a particular set of things, you're limited to that set of things. Um, and suppose if, say, you did limit, identify yourself as being a collection of the five khandhas or the five aggregates, the question then comes up, well, what about nirvana? Nirvana is the end of the five aggregates. Does that mean that you end too? And it's kind of a scary thought. <laughs> When I was at the monastery several years back, <clears throat> we have a bell up at the top of the hill, and people will ring it only in emergencies. And one afternoon, about three o'clock, someone started ringing the bell very, very rapidly. So I went running up to see if there was a fire or something, and it was someone who had been reading the book, What the Buddha Taught. And he got to the section on not-self, and he said, look, are we committing spiritual suicide here? <laughs> and if you identify yourself with the five khandhas, <laughs> that was his emergency. <laughs> If you identify yourself with the five khandhas, even if you don't say it's myself, but it's just say what, you know, what I am as a person, which involves some interesting verbal gymnastics, um, there's a the whole question, well, you know, does nirvana mean annihilation of what you are? There's also the question, if you try to define yourself, is are you awakened by your nature or are you unawakened by your nature? You know, do we have Buddha nature or do we not have Buddha nature? That's the kind of question that's going to get you all tied up. That's again, if you're already awakened, well, why do we have to practice? If you're not awakened, how can you take someone who's not awakened and wake them up? If that's what they are by their very nature. You know? You're stuck by your idea of what you are. So the Buddha recommends that you drop that question in favor of the questions of how is there suffering and how it can be put to an end. Those are the direct questions he asks. We'll be turning to this a little bit later in the course of the day, but the Buddha's approach to how to drop those other questions comes down to two approaches. One is to frame new questions to try to get you interested in them, like saying, focus instead on the question of suffering and how it can be put to an end. Or you deconstruct the original question. And his tactic here is to take all the various things that you might identify with and look at them very carefully and say, is this me? Is this me? Well, no, 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 no. And finally you get to the point where you've covered everything possible. And that way you've deconstructed the question and then can turn to the issue of uh, how to put an end to suffering. 
which is one of the Zen techniques. And the question is, who am I? And you go on asking that, and the part, you finally discover that it was a stupid question to ask. But you have to, you have to, you know, do a very thorough survey before you can <laughs> realize how stupid it is. So the Buddha himself said that the questions that are appropriate is how is there suffering and how do you put it to an end? And it's interesting that we phrase these as two questions, but there's one point where he says there's just one point that he taught it, taught, taught it. Excuse me, <laughs> my all those Thai people I taught English to is getting back to me. One point that he taught, and he said the point was. Suffering and the end of suffering. Well, it sounds like two points, right? Suffering and its end. Well, he's, the way it's one question is he's teaching us about suffering for the purpose of putting an end to it. I mean, there are a lot of things we could talk about in terms of suffering that wouldn't put an end to it, and he's not interested in explaining that. The only thing he's interested in explaining about suffering or analyzing suffering is how you can bring it to an end so that it is one point. And you notice when he talks about the Four Noble Truths, comprehending suffering is our duty with regard to suffering. But in the course of comprehending suffering, you're also learning how to put it to an end. When you really understand it, when you get to the end of comprehending why there's suffering and what it does to the mind, you also come also to the point of how you put it to an end. So it is one question that he's asking, one point that he's talking about. And it's important to keep that in mind, because we'll be talking later about how the teachings of the khandhas, some of the khanda teachings focus on the question of how suffering happens. Other khanda teachings, teachings focus on the question of how to put it to an end. And you find that there's going to be some overlap between the two. In fact, the organization of the material that we're working on today, I have to admit beforehand, I organized this for a course two years ago at the Barry Center. And just the other day, when it finally came time after having printed up the course materials, sent them up here, I was going through them to organize my thoughts for today, and I realized that it was horribly organized. <laughs> Passages that should be in section two were in section one, and vice versa, and it was all messed up. So my excuse is that there is no clear line between the two sections. <laughs> so. The Buddha's teachings on the concept of the five aggregates or the five khandhas are for the purpose of putting an end to suffering. We have to keep that point firmly in mind because that's what they're there for. That's why he formulated them. My handwriting here is almost. Okay. The question here is looking at suffering as a process something that happens, something that we do, that we create. And the khandhas are useful for understanding the process of how we give rise to suffering for ourselves. It's his method of an analyzing that particular process. And also it's his analysis for the process of how we can take suffering apart. And notice here, it's this, we come to the process as a process of creating suffering. Some people think they can put, um, avoid the question of you know, limiting yourself, your, your notion of a self, by saying, well, I don't identify myself with a particular thing. I identify myself as a process. And they think that avoids the problem. Well, it doesn't avoid the problem at all, because nirvana, the end of suffering, is actually an end of a process. And the question is, if you identify yourself with a process, when the process changes, what's happened to you? Or if you get to a point where there's no process, again, what's happened to you again? It's a, you can't avoid it that way. 
But if you look at the, pressure, the process of what's happening in your experience in the, in the, from the point of view of, okay, how is suffering created as a part of this process? How can I use this process in a new way to put an end to suffering? Then you use the khandhas in a useful way. So the question is, how are khandhas made and how are they, do we continue to make them into suffering? When the Buddha analyzes the, the process of suffering, there are three modes of an analysis that he uses in the Pali Canon. The khandhas is just one of three. I'll mention the other two very briefly. Um, the other two are what they call the ayatana, or the sense media. You can take the process of suffering, or how suffering is created, by taking a part into okay, eye and visual objects, ear and sounds, nose, smells, tongue, tastes, body, tactile sensations, intellect, and ideas. And you analyze those processes, and there are some passages where you can use that mode of analysis to understand how suffering is created, understand how it can be put aside. A second mode of analysis that he uses is the six, what they call datu, or as you sometimes see them translated as elements or properties. And the six here are earth, water, fire, air, space, and consciousness. And you look at the interactions of those, those six things, and you can analyze the way suffering gets put together, the way it's put, taken apart. Just a brief word on, on these datus. We, when we hear them translated as elements, it sounds like it's a very primitive kind of chemistry, like the medieval chemistry of earth, earth, water, and fire, and so on. They're, it's better understood as properties of experience. When you close your eyes, how do you know you have a body? What do you feel from the inside? Well, you feel there's warmth, there's a certain kind of motion, there's a weight or heaviness to it. And there's kind of a liquid feeling to it as well. And that's what your internal sense of the body is created from. Around it is a sense of space. And then, of course, what's aware of it is the consciousness. And the theory was that these, these properties here act as potentials. You can focus on your body. And if you look at it intently enough, no matter what part of the body you focus on, you always notice there's a potential for warmth, say, or a potential for movement, a potential for heaviness. And you can... Um, the theory of illnesses that they had back in those days was that if you were ill, it was because one of the properties got a little bit too provoked or too, um, too potentialized, you know, actualized. And then you have to counteract it by finding a, a medicine that counteracts that particular potential. These two theories, the theories of the sense media and the theories of the, the, the properties here, were things that existed prior to the Buddha's time. He was taking a, a set of anal a way of an analyzing your sense of the body, a way of analyzing experience, which was common even before his, his awakening. With the khandas, though, you get something that's totally new with him. As I said earlier, prior to his awakening, the word khanda was simply used in a very physical sense, like it was a pile of things. Like you would have a khanda of trash, say, out behind your house. And then the question is, what do you do with that pile of stuff? Um, the trunk of a tree was also called the khanda of that tree. It was kind of the mass. It was the bulky part of the tree. This sometimes it was the whole torso. Sometimes it was just this, this part of the shoulder back here, which if you're a laborer back in those days before we had labor-saving devices, this is the part of the body that did the hard work. It was the heavy part of your body. The word khanda can also mean mass. They talk about a mass of flame, a mass of fire. And 
from what I've been able to track down, that prior to the Buddha, nobody ever used the word khanda in the psychological sense that the Buddha used it. It was simply a physical thing. And the question is, why did the Buddha use the term that way? Well, probably because, um, for two meanings. One, just because of the heaviness or the bulkiness of the, of the associations with khanda. We have these five things that we carry around and they're a burden. This is a topic that's repeated many, many times in the, in the canon. Um, the implication being that if you don't pick it up, it's not heavy. Right? But we're carrying it around. We have what they call the five clinging khandas. We'll have to make a distinction later on between the, just the khandas on, on, the, on their own and then the clinging khandas. A second association, the Buddha used a lot of flame imagery in his teaching. Fire is a symbol for suffering. And you can think about the khanda, you know, that, that trunk of a tree that we talked about just now, we cut it down, that's the fuel for the suffering. It's around these things, that, these masses of um, form, feeling, perception, thought constructs, and consciousness. Those are the five khandas, and we'll go into those in a little bit more detail. These are the heavy things that we burden ourselves with. These are the things also that are on flame with the fires of suffering when we cling to them. The word clinging in Pali also means the act of taking sustenance. And they talked about how a fire would take sustenance on a certain kind of fuel. And so this carries through that image of the burning. Uh, the fact that the clinging or the taking of, taking of sustenance is what keeps this fire burning. Then the third association was, is that one I mentioned just now is when they talk about a mass of flame. When you had a huge fire, it would be an agi kanda, a big mass of flame. And this carries the connotations of one, suffering, as we've also talked, mentioned now. Secondly, the fact that fire is an activity. Your suffering isn't just some sort of lump thing, even though sometimes there has that feeling. You have this, you have this suffering that you carry around, and it's this big lump that you've got inside. When you start analyzing, you realize that it's an activity. There are things that you do to keep the suffering going all the time. Just as a fire is kept going by the fact that it's constantly taking sustenance out of the fuel. The third connotation that often comes with fire in the Pali Canon is, in addition to being suffering and activity, it's also unstable. I mean, you look at a fire and it's constantly burning off in different ways, flame fires. And you look at the way you suffer in life and you realize your sufferings are unstable as well. You know, from one moment to the next, you can go from intense joy to intense suffering and then back and forth, back and forth like this. Um, sometimes when we read the texts that say, well, you know, this is what a person truly is, is the five khandhas, or that our sense of self is made up of all five khandhas, it sounds like we've got this lump of five khandhas we carry around with us all the time. But if you look at your sense of self, you begin to notice it's extremely unstable. What you identify with one moment, you might be identifying with a pain. This pain is consuming me. The next moment you're identifying with a particular idea, a particular state of consciousness. Our sense of self is moving around all the time. And for many people, this is the reason why before they deal with the question of suffering, they would like to have this sense of self pinned down. If we could finally get you know, some final word on what I really am, then we can deal with suffering. And the Buddha says, don't bother. Just leave it unstable. Leave it as, as a vague, unstable concept, and start taking it apart from moment to moment to moment. And you realize, after a while, it's nothing you want to hold on to anyhow. 
that helps you let go. One final point I want to take up before we start looking at the, the material. Has the material come yet? Has, has, that, has the sheets come back, come back yet? Okay. okay. We can talk for a while. Okay. The question is, why these five aggregates? As I pointed out earlier, the five come down to form, which can mean the form of the body, but it also can mean any physical thing at all. You, you can, if you're a member of IMC, you can get very attached to this building. In the past, you drove past it who knows how many times you hardly noticed it. And now that, now that you're responsible for it, it's, it's something that you get very attached to. And there's a sense of clinging that goes right there. This, this is a form that you could cling to as well. So form is the first of the khandhas. The second one is feeling. These can be feelings of pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain. Kind of a neutral feeling. The third khanda, sanya, is translated normally as perception. And it means perception. The problem with perception in English is that it means several different things. But here the specific meaning is the perception that you apply to something. You know, I perceive this as a piece of paper. Or I perceive someone as being friendly, or I perceive someone as being unfriendly. It may be totally independent of what that person is, but it's my going out and placing a label on somebody. So the sanya there is a, is a particular kind of label. The fourth of the khandhas are mental constructs, the things that the mind creates. And as we get into a passage later, we'll be discovering that this process of mental creation actually plays a part in all five khandhas. It underlies all five of them. But for the time, time being, we'll just talk about it as you know, the way the thoughts get constructed in your mind. Saying, this is good, this is bad. The stories that you create, the narratives you create, the theories about things, the, picture, um, the ideas you have about the world, these are all the fifth, fourth kind, excuse me, which is the Pali term is sankara. S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A. And then the fifth khanda is consciousness, a specific kind of consciousness. It's the consciousness of the six senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and intellect. Those six, those six types of consciousness all come under the khanda of consciousness. And the question arises, well, why did the Buddha divide things up in this particular way? If we, if we took sort of the pie of experience, why does he divide it up into these five pieces? And the, the Pali Canon doesn't explain. The best explanation I found is in a book by a John Lee, who's one of the Thai forest masters. And he equates the, the different khandhas with states of concentration. The form khanda is the first four jhanas. The word jhana is a state for mental absorption. And Interestingly enough, in terms of the, the fire imagery that the Buddha has, you know, fire, the, the erratic burning of a fire is suffering, the, the word jhana comes from a verb, jayate, which is also means to burn, but it means a steady burn, like the, burn of, the burning of an oil lamp or the burning of a candle in a windless room. And as the main theme for today is that the Buddha's analysis of suffering talks about how we create suffering out of the khandhas. Um, 
his path away from suffering is to take those same khandhas and turn them into a path to bring us to the end of suffering. If you were thinking in terms of bricks or, or weights, the khandhas which we create suffering are like bricks we carry on our shoulder. And then the bricks is, and the khandhas as a path. We take the bricks down we make them a path on the road so we can walk on them. From the fire image, we take this fire which is burning... Whoops, excuse me. I don't know which one that was. The loudspeaker? Or the tape? I'm sorry. All you people out there in tape land. <laughs> you take the erratic burning of the khandhas, which is the suffering, and then you turn them down to a steady flame as you center the mind. And then when you have that steady flame, you can read by it and figure out why you're creating suffering and then put it into it. And then the flame goes out. So the first four of the jhanas correspond to the, the, the aggregate of form, or the khanda of form. And then we have what they call four formless jhanas. The first one is the jhana of infinite space, in which you take a feeling, the feeling of space, and you use it to blot out all other feelings. The next of the formless jhanas is the jhana of infinite consciousness, and you take simply consciousness of consciousness and use that to blot out consciousness of other things. The third of the formless jhanas is the, the, the jhana of nothingness, in which you take the idea there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing, which is a thought construct, and you use that to blot out other thought constructs. And the last of the formless jhanas is the jhana of neither perception nor non-perception, in which you take that one perception of there is no perceiving going on, and you just hold on to that one. There's just that one, but it's not aware of anybody else. And so. You, Basically, what he's taking is the different, his aggregates correspond to different activities of the mind that get highlighted in different stages of concentration and takes them apart one by one by one and says, We're not this, we're not that, we're not this, we're not that. We turn the khandhas into those states as a path. And then when we get to the end of that, then our analysis takes those apart so that we can be freed from them. So those are some random thoughts on the khandhas before we start going through our passages. Are there any questions? Nancy? You have to define suffering, which underlies everything you've talked about. Uh -huh. So what's suffering? Okay. Suffering, the Buddha defines as <clears throat> burdensomeness. It's funny, he doesn't define suffering, the term suffering per, per se. It's, it's, it's left to the commentaries to define it as what is hard to bear. But he says, wherever there's clinging to the five khandhas, there's going to be suffering. The sense of something that you can't bear, that you can't, that you can't carry around, and that you want to be relieved from. That sounds like just big stuff. A what? That sounds like big, concrete, specific events. Mm -hmm. Is that what it means? It's, he, well, he takes it apart into activities things you do that are hard to bear in terms of the cause and effect, and that you do something and then there's going to be a result that's either easy to bear or hard to bear. Because there'll be that experience. But then, as we're getting into this later, we'll discover that as we create, we actually create the experience, sort of the potential from our past actions comes so that we'll have a particular type of experience. And then in the present moment, we grab onto that potential and turn it into more suffering. Yeah. <laughs> um, they talk about just 
overall unsatisfactory means of life. Mm -hmm. So suffering is not something that comes and goes. It's kind of an underlying theme, the way they would define it. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're defining more something that comes and goes. It's, it comes and goes, but the Buddha talked about suffering in two different contexts. You know, there's the context of the Four Noble Truths, and then there's the context of what are called the Three Characteristics, which I wanted to get into a little bit later today, but we can talk about it now for the time being. He was saying that anything that is inconstant is going to have a certain element of stress. Anything that changes will have a certain element of stress in it. And because of that element of stress, it's something you shouldn't identify with. Now, that element of stress, I mean, everything changes, and so therefore there would be an element of stress in everything around us. In fact, there's only one thing that doesn't change, and that's nirvana. So in that sense, there's an element, there's a, an element of residual suffering or potential suffering in everything that changes. Now, in the context of the Four Noble Truths, it's only where there's clinging, he says, that there is suffering. The suffering in the Four Noble Truths is defined in that term, in those terms. And so you've got four noble truths. One of them is the cessation of suffering. So that means there's still two other truths that are things that change, which are stressful by nature, but he doesn't identify them with suffering in that context. One is the craving or the ignorance, which is the cause of suffering. And the other is the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering, in the sense of leading an end to clinging. Basic analogy that... Oh, I find works here is the analogy of the mountain. And if you see a mountain over there, the question is, is the mountain heavy? And the answer is, well, if you're trying to pick it up, yes. <laughs> if you don't pick it up, it's not heavy. And so there's a certain, there's a certain weight in, in, inherent in the mountain, which would be the suffering in terms of the three characteristics. But the fact that you don't pick it up means, okay, that's, you put an end to suffering in, in terms of the Four Noble Truths. But it's... One of the basic teachings throughout Buddhism is, um, I know there's, certain, there's a lot of people who would, who would attack me for this, but saying that the Buddha's most primary teaching is the teaching on karma. There is action and the results of our actions. When he talks about suffering, he says there are certain actions that are unskillful because they create a burdensome you know, result. And the, the need for the training is to stop acting in that way that's going to cause that burden. And, suffer, and so he looks at suffering as something that we create that we keep giving rise to over and over and over and over again. And if we learn to stop doing that, yeah, that's the end of suffering. Does that answer your question? Yeah, but we've talked about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Any other questions? Well, I mean, that's, that's the wrong time to ask. <laughs> yes, Brad, yes. Um, just, could you just go through the uh, four uh, rupa jhanas in which each simply corresponds to with the kindness? Uh, four arupa jhanas? The formless? Uh, formless the formless, formless jhanas. Jhana. This is a John Lee's character. This, yeah, okay. The first one would... Um, the jhana of space would correspond to the feeling aggregate. The jhana of consciousness, infinite consciousness, would correspond with the consciousness aggregate. The jhana of nothing would correspond with the sankhara or the thought construct ag aggregate. And then the jhana of neither perception or non-perception would be the perception aggregate. Okay. Okay. 
Anything else? The question? Yes. I, I don't know if I'm mis- mishearing, but are you saying jhanas or J H A N A, yeah. I knew of a a Western monk who was teaching in Thailand and he was trying to teach the jhanas to people and he was using the word in Thai they call it chan. C H A N. And but there's a Thai word jan, which means plate. <laughs> And so I'd like he was telling people to find the four plates. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go through our material. Look at the handouts here. Just to go over again the, the questions that the Buddha did ask. The first passage points out the, the basis for most of our questions. Is that he says, in cases where a person overcome with pain, his mind exhausted, could be her mind exhausted, grieves, mourns, laments, beats your breast, you become bewildered. Or when overcome with pain, your mind exhausted, you come to a search outside. Who knows a way or two to stop this pain? So that stress or suffering results either in bewilderment or in search. The problem is they usually result in both, which means that our search gets bewildered. <laughs> and we start looking in the wrong places. So those are the que- that's the source of questions that he's looking to answer. The questions that come out of pain. The questions that come out of suffering and stress. Which is the point of the second quote. Both formally and now, it's only stress that I describe and the cessation of stress. And then the next passage, <clears throat> which should be a good guideline for anyone who attempts to introduce the Buddhist teachings to someone who's brand new to them. A group of monks are going off to a foreign land where no one has ever heard the Buddhist teachings before. They go to say goodbye to the Buddha. <clears throat> and the Buddha says, have you said goodbye to Sariputta yet? And they say, well, no, we haven't yet. So we'll go say goodbye to Sariputta. And, and so Sariputta... So they go to see him, and as he asks them, suppose someone in that foreign land asks you, what is your teacher's doctrine? What does he teach? How are you going to answer him? And the monk said, we would like to hear your answer to that one first before we go. So this is his answer. Okay. He said, our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire. And he said, then there are people who will question you. The teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for what? And he says, our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for form, for feeling, perception, for fabrications, and that's thought fabrications. Or our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for consciousness. And the next question they would ask is, and seeing what danger does your teacher teach the subduing of passion and desire for form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness? And Sarabhutta recommends you should answer that when you're not free from passion from these things, then love, thirst, fever, and craving for these, then from any change in that form, there will arise sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. 
In other words, wherever you get attached to something and it's going to change, then it gives rise to these forms of suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And then for each of the five khandhas. If you're attached to any of them, these are the results that are going to happen when those things change. And then the next question will be, and seeing what benefit does your teacher teach the subduing of passion and desire for form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness? And the Sarbhuta's answer is that when one is free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, and craving for these things, then with any change and alteration in those things, there will be no sire, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, or despair. So those are the benefits he teaches. So immediately see the question of passion and desire, which is another term for clinging, is going to be the big issue. And again, he teaches this not simply because it's a cool thing to teach, but because there are definite dangers that people fall into if they don't know or understand this teaching, and there are benefits to come when they do understand the teaching. And so finally, the last of the questions is, okay, what's the way out of this passion and desire? Which the Buddha identifies as the middle way. It leads to calm, it leads to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Unbinding, back in those days, was a, a general term that was used by other... Nirvana, excuse me, nirvana, unbinding is a translation of the term nirvana. And nirvana was not made up by the Buddha, or at least the term wasn't. Because other, other groups at the same time use the same term for an ultimate happiness. Sort of the cooling of the passion, the cooling of the fires. And so the response here is, the way to the end of the suffering that's caused from passion and desire is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And one of the points of today's readings will be is that you take the five khandhas and you turn them into these factors. You use form, feeling, perceptions, thought fabrications, thought constructs, and consciousness. And you take them from their normal state as being something you weigh yourself down with the suffering and you turn them into a path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. Because remember, the khandhas are activities. They're things that we do. So we do them in a new way, in a new pattern. And as we transform them into the path, this leads to the end of suffering. Are there any questions on those questions? That's sort of, yes. So does the Buddha say then that the five khandhas is really the way we should be thinking about ourselves and our relationship to everything and that it's all-inclusive and there's nothing else? It's all inclusive. I mean, the only thing that's not included in the five khandhas is nirvana, when you think about it. Anything material comes under the form khanda. And then the way your mind reacts to things, or the way your mind shapes things, either comes under feeling, perceptions, thought constructs, or consciousness. So is that a good way for us to practice then? Is that as we go through our lives, we should try to use this construct as a way to think about all the activities that we do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And particularly for the purpose of putting an end to the suffering. Because that's, that's what the tools are for, is to analyze, well, how does suffering come about? If you want to look at the way you're creating suffering, try to look at your actions in terms of these five khandhas. 
And again, the kindas are not things as much as they're activities, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And just look at your activities and see, okay, where is it? Where are you creating these things and where are you adding unnecessary suffering on top of them? Yes? How do you know what is right? <laughs> what is right? Okay, if it puts an end to suffering, that's... Excuse me? Well, you find that if you put an end to your suffering in a skillful way, you're also creating less of a burden on other people. Because what's creating your suffering is your greed, your anger, and delusion. Now, if you put an end to those, you're not the only person benefiting. The people around you are no longer subject to your greed, aversion, and delusion. So, that, that's the direction we're going. Okay, let's go on to this next section, which is constructing the aggregates. The point of this section will be the fact that we create these aggregates through our own actions. And the aggregates themselves are a kind of activity. <clears throat> so let's start out with the passage here. Okay. The Buddha is addressing the monks. From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration, or the, that's samsara. Sometimes people think that, that samsara does not have a beginning. Well, he says it has an inconceivable beginning. It's kind of like the Big Bang. You can't get your mind around it. <laughs> Can you get your mind around the Big Bang? <laughs> it's, 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 it's inconceivable, this beginning. Okay, the beginning point is not evident. <coughs> The beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. He says, just as when a dog is tied by a leash to a post or a stake, if it walks, it walks right around that post or stake. If it stands, it stands right next to that post or stake. If it sits, it sits next, right next to that post or stake. If it lies down, right next to that post or stake. In the same way, an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, that's his term for us, regards form as, this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. He or she regards feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness as, this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. Okay, if you walk, you walk right around these five clinging aggregates. If you stand, you stand right around these five clinging aggregates. And basically all the things that we relate to in life, in response to your question over here, it's these five clinging aggregates. And it's trying to understand how they are clinging aggregates that helps us get beyond them. We're tied to these things because we cling to them. Okay. So you should reflect on your mind with every moment. From a long, for a long time has this mind been defiled by passion, aversion, and delusion. From the defilement of mind are beings defiled. From the purification of the mind are beings purified. Okay, <laughs> this next question sounds a little anachronistic, but I'll explain it to you in a minute. He says, monks, have you ever seen a moving picture show? And they say... <laughs> <laughs> And surprise, surprise, the monks say yes. Okay. Um, someone has actually done a study of this. And it turns out that back in the old days, and this goes back to the time of the Buddha, they would make these enormous shadow puppets. And then they would go up and they would take the puppet and have a light source, which would be a lantern of some kind, and a big blank wall. And then they would take the shadow puppet between the lamp and the wall and they would cast shadows on the wall. And there were ways of manipulating a puppet because it was made out of leather or something else that was flexible. 
that would actually make the pictures move. So you could, you know, you have a picture of a horse, and you can actually make the horse run. Um, one of my favorite movies of a, a Javanese shadow puppet show showed, I've forgotten which character it was, you know, shooting an arrow, and you see the arrow go, boom, out of the arrow. And the next frame, it goes, to the air. I love that, the next frame, you know. <laughs> and then finally, bang, it comes into the, into, the, into the person that is being shot at. That's the kind of moving picture show the Buddha's talking about here. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Okay. He says that moving picture show was created by the mind, and the mind is even more variegated than a moving picture show. That particular study I was talking about had pictures of how very elaborate some of these shadow puppets could be. I mean, huge scenes, and they had figured out some way of making a cellophane-like material in which the light would go through, and so they could color it. So you'd have pictures of hills and clouds and sky and all this other kind of stuff that would be part of the moving picture show. So even back in those days, they had. Cinematography. Okay. This mind of ours is even more variegated than the moving picture show. In other words, it can create an awful lot of different things. And the point here, of course, is that all those different things we create, most of them that we create are suffering. Okay. We think, well, if I change it here, if I tweak it a little bit here, then it will be suffering anymore, but it's still suffering. And the reason it's suffering is because our minds are defiled. Look at the passion, aversion, and delusion which takes those creations of the mind and turns them into suffering. Um, yes? What does transmigration mean? Samsara. And as long as we're on the topic of samsara, it's important to realize that it's... We tend to think of, you know, Buddhism says we're in samsara as if it were a kind of place. It's actually an activity. Beings wander on. It's this process of wandering. We create what they call bhava, which are these states of mind, or states of being. And then the mind goes into them. Have you ever noticed the process when you fall asleep, as you're drifting off, and suddenly there's this, this new world that suddenly appears in your mind, and you go into it, you're off, you're in, the next, in your dream world, and that's the, the beginning of your sleep. Well, this is basically the process that we go through as we go from one birth to another. You know, this place appears in the mind and we're into it. And then we find ourselves born into that place. That's what happened. That's how we got here. And so it's a process that, it's a process that creates places, but it's, it, in and of itself is not a place that we have to get out of. Because many times when you think about if people are trapped in samsara and one person gets out of samsara, well, isn't that selfish? But if, it's, if you think of it more of an addiction, everybody's addicted to samsara. It's not selfish for you to end your addiction. Okay? Because one, you, sh you, one, you get you know, one less person to cause suffering for other people, and two, you show that other people that there is a way out, a way to stop doing this suffering process. Okay, next passage. I can imagine no one group of beings more variegated than that of common animals. We'll stop and think about that. All the different animals there are in the world, just huge variety. And he says these all come from the mind. Someone thought, wouldn't it be cool to walk around without legs or feet? And that's how we get snakes. Just the idea that, hey, this would be cool, and they try that for a while. Did you ever hear that? Did you ever read the book um, Once in Future King by T.H. White? Absolutely. <laughs> Do you know the badger story? The badger story? Okay. 
in the beginning of the book, young Wart, Arthur, the King Arthur to be, is being is turned into different kinds of animals by Merlin, the musician. And there's one time he's turned into a badger to go down and listen to this badger. Well, the badger, it turns out, has written a PhD thesis on how beings came to be the way they are. And according to his thesis, God created a lot of embryos on day four or five, I guess it was. And so he says to the embryos, okay, now all of you going out there are going to need tools. So you have the chance to change parts of your body into different kinds of tools. So I allow you to choose two or three tools apiece. And so the different animals choose their different tools. And as the badger tells it, his ancestors decided to trade their arms for a digging, digging hose and their mouths for chompers. Or I've forgotten what exactly it was. There was one toad that decided to change its body into a piece of blotting paper. And all the different animals choose to exchange different parts of their bodies for tools. And then at the very end, there's just one little animal embryo left, and that's the human being. And the god says, well, a human being, I just, you've obviously been thinking about this quite a lot. What do you want? Which tools do you want? He said, I would rather not turn myself into tools. I'd rather use tools. And so God said, okay, in that case, you're going to have to look like an embryo all your life. And the man says, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so because he has the idea of using tools rather than being tools, then that puts him in charge of creation. So that, so. But it goes, it's... I was thinking about it because it goes to the long, long list of different tools that animals traded themselves in for. And you realize, didn't you, it's an extremely variegated bunch of beings out there, these common animals. And as the Buddha points out, these were all created by mind. The mind tries this, the mind tries that. And it's because of passion, aversion, and delusion that no matter what it tries, it keeps ending up in suffering. The final paragraph. It's just as when they're being dye, lack, yellow, orpiment, indigo, or crimson, and these are the, this is what they used for paint back in those days. A dye or a painter would paint the picture of a woman or a man, complete in all its parts, on a well-polished panel or wall, or on a piece of cloth. In the same way, an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, when creating, creates nothing but form, feeling, perception, fabrications, consciousness. That's worth thinking about for a while. All the things that we create in our life, come to these five different things. Can you think of anything that doesn't fall into these categories? These are the creations of the mind. And the whole point of what we're going to be studying is that when you cling to them, there's going to be stress and suffering. The question is how to learn not to cling. The next passage goes right into that, that particular issue. It's important. This is an extremely important passage because many times, you notice in the Buddha's very first sermon when he was defining suffering, he says birth, aging, illness, and death are suffering. But he comes down to his summary, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. And you hear many people drop the word clinging and say, well, just the five aggregates are suffering. And that's a mistake. It's the clinging aggregate. It's whether there's clinging for them that there's going to be suffering. So, what are the five aggregates? Okay, whatever form is past, future, present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. That's the aggregate of form. Okay, basically, every form that you find in space or time, any categories of space or time, either past, present, or future, in or out, 
far or near, no matter how blatant or refined, that all comes under the aggregate of form. Same with the other aggregates. Whatever feeling is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, that's the aggregate of feeling. Whatever perception, whatever mental fabrications, are past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. That's the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of, aggregate of fabrication. Finally, whatever consciousness is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, that's the aggregate of consciousness. This last one is important because occasionally you'll find the text talking about a different kind of consciousness, called consciousness without feature, or consciousness without a surface. Because it's outside of space or time, it doesn't come under the, this aggregate. But that's a point we'll, we'll get into later. Okay. Okay. So those are the five aggregates, just in and of themselves. Now the clinging aggregates, and the, the same pattern follows through for each of the five, is, okay, whatever form, past, future, present, internal, external, blatant, or subtle, common, or sublime, far, or near, is clingable, it offers sustenance, sustenance in the sense of offering sustenance for, for more clinging. And it's accompanied with mental fermentation. That's form as a clinging aggregate. Mental fermentation. Okay. First one is sensual passion. There are four mental fermentations altogether. Sensual passion. The second one is the fermentation of views. B-I-E-W-S. Views. Third one is the fermentation of becoming. That's that process I described just now where we create these kind of worlds in the mind and then go take birth in them. That, that, that's a kind of fermentation in the mind. And the fourth one is ignorance. Ignorance. The, they're sometimes called the taints. The Pali word is asava, A-S-A-V-A. And the etym etymology of the word is something that flows out. These things flow out of the mind. Um, the reason they're called taints is because they also talk about um, you know, stuff flowing out of wounds. Another term for asava is wine, fruit wine. That's why I like the word fermentation. Like, like a, banana, a banana wine would be a banana asava, or peach wine would be a peach asava. Yes, Cheryl? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. What did you miss? <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> okay. The word asava means outflow, literally. Um, um, can also mean fermentation. Things come bubbling up out of the mind. That, that's the analogy that I, I relate to most easily. You're sitting there meditating, and all of a sudden, swamp gas comes bubbling up in your mind. <laughs> All these ideas and things that you didn't want to deal with suddenly come up. Um, so these are the things that create clinging aggregates. It's because of these sensual passion, views, ignorance, and becoming. That the aggregates, which are just sort of you know neutral in and of themselves, become forms of suffering. It's because you cling to them.
and to look at the word clinging, look on page 10. This, as I said, this material was not very well organized, so we're going to be skipping around a lot today. <clears throat> Second passage on page 10. There are four modes of clinging. The first two relate directly to those different fermentations. Sensuality, which means sensual passion again, and views as a mode of clinging. The other two modes of clinging are a little bit different. Precepts and practices and doctrines of the self. Clinging here in the sense of precepts and practices means the idea that if you do things in a particular way, that's awakening in and of itself. Basically, it's kind of the ritual state of mind that we have. If I don't step on the sidewalk crack, I'll be okay. Yes? At some point, you talk about the relationship between five aggregates and the five hindrances. Five hindrances? Later. It seems like there is a relationship. Mm-hmm. The relationship is through the clinging. That, that's, a, that's a closer relationship. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll be referring to that later. Basically, precepts and practice. I mean, you'll notice, of course, that in the, in the path to practice, we do have precepts and we do have practices. But it's specifically as a path and not as the goal. Here he's talking about clinging in the sense of if I do things a certain way, then that's it. I've got it right. That kind of ritualistic state of mind that has nothing to do with intention. I had a very strong taste of this in Thailand one time, towards the end of my teacher's life. We were building a Buddha image, and he wanted some amulets to go in the image. The tradition over there was that if you built a large stupa or a jetty or a large Buddha image, and all the people, a lot of people were involved, at the end of the construction, you would hand out amulets to everybody, and then they would take the amulets and they would place it inside the, the, the stupa or the Buddha image or whatever, and then seal it up. The symbolism of the act being that you wanted to make sure that you came back as a Buddhist. This sort of represents you and you're in Buddhism now, okay? You're there with the Buddha. And so we started making them, and he, he got to know this person who had an awful lot of training in, these, in the old style of way of making amulets. And he said, you know, if you're, doing, if you're going to do this right, you know, there's a lot of ceremony that goes around this. And so John Fung sort of played along with the guy, and I was the person who had to make the amulets. And there's a whole, a whole set of rituals that went around this. There was the <clears throat> number one was that you got your ingredients together and you sit down to pound the ingredients together in a mortar and pestle and you don't get up until you're finished. Even if you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you're there for two hours as you're pounding this stuff. <clears throat> Secondly, when you pound it, you have to do it at a certain number, of, you know, auspicious number. Inauspicious numbers are even numbers, so everything had to be an odd number. Don't ask me why. <clears throat> There were certain chants that had to be said and all sorts of stuff. And this person was just totally into the ritual. And as I got to know this person, I began to realize that I couldn't trust this person's intentions. The sort of person who's really hung up on ritual or the person whose intentions are usually often a little less than honorable. But they sort of hid behind, okay, I do this the right number of times, I do this the right number of ingredients, I'm safe, okay, I can get away with whatever I want. That's what the Buddha is talking about here, this attachment to precepts and practices. That your intentions don't have to be. It doesn't matter what your intentions are, as long as you do it right. And, um, 
And as I found out later, the guy really was a sleazebag. But um, <laughs> that's an all. That's a total other story. <laughs> And the final mode of clinging is doctrines of the self as a mode of clinging. And now this may seem, what's the word, redundant with views as a mode of clinging. But when, when you're talking about doctrines as a self, we're talking about a very strong sense of what I am, which you know, sometimes seems to be deep within a view almost. It's this deep inheld conviction that you have. And as we're going to be seeing later on, that that's probably the most virulent form of clinging. The things that you hold on to, as you and yourself. You take these khandhas and you turn them into yourself, and that's when you suffer. So, while we're in the topic of precepts and practices, did I ever tell the story about Conrad Lawrence and his goose? Conrad Lawrence was a uh, biologist in Vienna, I think, Austria, Austria, someplace in Austria. And he tells a story in one of his books about this little gosling that he raised. The gosling's mother was killed, and so Conrad Lawrence took the gosling in under his, under his wing. Um, <laughs> well, of course, the gosling immediately fixated on Conrad Lawrence as his mother. And in the beginning, it was during the summer, and so he fed the little gosling outside. The gosling stayed outside. As the weather started getting colder, Conrad Lawrence realized he was going to have to bring the little goose, as it was getting turning into now, in, inside the house, inside his apartment. And so the very first day, he had the, the goose come inside. He sort of brought the food in, and the goose followed him inside. And as he got inside, there was this long hall, which ended in a window. And then halfway down the hall was the stairway that goes up to Conrad Lawrence's apartment. And so the goose gets inside, suddenly realize it's surrounded by walls and a ceiling. It's never been surrounded by anything like this, and it gets freaked out. And so it goes running for the window. Well, it hits the window, realizes it can't go outside. And in the meantime, Conrad Lawrence has gone up the stairs, and so the gosling turns around, follows him up the stairs. Next day, gosling comes in to be fed, goes to the window, comes back, goes up the stairs. <laughs> And for the next couple of months, that was the pattern. He'd go to the window, come back, go up the stairs. And as his trip to the window would get shorter and shorter, until it got to the point where he would go to the edge of the stairs, shake his foot at the window, and then go up. <laughs> Does this remind you of anyone's behavior? <laughs> well, one night, Conrad Lawrence comes home late from work. It's dark outside. The goose is hungry. And so as Conrad Lawrence opens the door, the goose goes running up the stairs, stops halfway up, shivers all over, walks back down, walks over the window, comes back, goes up the stairs. <laughs> so that's, that's clinging to precepts and practices. <laughs> so. so let's go into the individual condas now, starting on page four. Here we go through the, each of the five khandhas. First one is, why is it called form? It's because it's afflicted. And here, here, here the Buddha is, play, is playing with words, rupati, which means to be afflicted or to be tormented. Thus it's called form. Afflicted with what? With cold, heat, and hunger and thirst, with a touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and reptiles. Because it is afflicted, it is called form. Now here's, here's specifically talking about the form of the body. 
but you, other physical forms are also affected by cold and heat. So it applies actually ultimately to all kinds of form. Notice, however, that also he's defining the term form in terms of a verb. We're talking about an activity here. And as modern physics will tell us, you know, you know atoms are activity. You know, matter is a form of activity. Molecules are activities. And this pattern goes all the way through all, all five khandhas. Why is it called feeling? Because it feels. Okay. <coughs> Feeling is an activity. It's not a thing. It's an activity. It's a process. Okay, what does it feel? It feels pleasure, feels pain, feels, feels neither pleasure nor pain. Perception is also defined in terms of an activity. It perceives. What does it perceive? It perceives blue, yellow, red, white. In other words, it names these colors. Those of you who are fluent in a foreign language know that different languages divide up the color spectrum into different at different spots. This is kind of the activity of the mind going on there. And in Thai, for instance, the word blue—excuse me—the word the word green covers blue and green, except for sky blue. And they have a special word for sky blue. And so the question comes up: You know, how do you distinguish between you know, this book? which is blue and, and the green and the blue of leaves. Well, it turns out there's a special form of pot that's made in Thailand, and it's this color. And so if they want to talk about this color, they will say pot green. <laughs> and if they want to talk about leaf green, then it's leaf green. But it is an arbitrary thing that we put on where we divide the color spectrum. It's, and it varies from culture to culture. That's perception. Why are they called fabrications? Because they fabricate fabricated things. And can I skip over this for a second? Because this is, this is the most complicated and important of the, of the five in this particular passage. Let's go over to consciousness first. Why is it called consciousness? Because it <coughs> cognizes. Okay. What does it cognize? It cognizes what is sour, bitter, pungent, sweet, alkaline, non-alkaline, salty, and unsalty. <coughs> because it cognizes, it's, cogni it's called consciousness. Now the question that immediately arises, okay, what's the difference between consciousness and perception? And what I think they're getting at here, it's not explained in the canon anywhere. Back in the time of the Buddha, sight was considered to be an active process, whereas taste was a more passive one. Nothing comes up and actually touches your eyeball, right? Why do you see? And now we days would say, nowadays we'd say, of course, the light beams come in from that object, they're reflected off. Well, back in the old days, it was actually eye beams would go out, latch onto the object, spotlight it, bring back the information. It's a more active process. Perception, perception is more active, consciousness is more passive. You know, something hits, hits the sense organs and it's a passive process, you know that something hit. And then you go out and you put a label on it. So the process of being aware of the contact is consciousness. The perception is the label you put on things. That's the next step. It's a more active process. So perception would be based on memory. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas consciousness isn't. Consciousness doesn't require memory, but perception <coughs> does. In fact, in Thailand, the word they use for sanya or perception can also mean memory, it can also mean recognition. 
Do you recognize this person? Okay, fabrications. They fabricate fabricated things. That's, their, that's why they're called fabrications. What do they fabricate into a fabricated thing? From formness, they, f they fabricate form. From feelingness, they fabricate feeling into a fabricated thing. From perceptionhood, from, fashion, from fabric fabricationhood or fabricationness. In other words, it's the abstract noun form of these things. They fabricate the different khandhas. The meaning of this passage is that it's related to the doctrine on karma. As a result of your past actions, there is a potential for certain kinds of perceptions, certain kinds of experiences. In the present moment, you, your process of fabrication, you take that potential and you turn it into an actual experience. Which means that everything you experience has an element of fabrication, an element of, and as we'll see later on, fabrication has an element of intention. There always has to be intention for you to have an experience through the senses, having have an experience of space and time. Is the fabrication like um, identification, like I mean, creating an identity? Creating... Sometimes it's simply saying, okay, you know, focusing on that particular sensation and making it into a recognizable sensation. Well, even, even prior to identification, there's the, there's the element of interest. I mean, what is this? That's a fabrication right there. There's an intention right there. People have done studies of, of you know, people's reactions to pain. And it's not, it's not totally a passive process. You know, there are lots of different sensory you know, impulses coming in from all directions all the time. And your brain is choosing which ones to focus on. And then once it's focused on it, will, you know, what, then what it does to it as uh, the next step. But without that focus, it's as if that sensation didn't happen. There's a potential always there for you to focus on that, but you choose to focus on it or not. That choice of focus, that's the, the element of intention, the element of fabrication. So is the element of intention the same as fabrication? So the others aren't concerned with Right, right, right. Fabrication is the intentional part. And this is an important teaching because it means if we change our intentions, we change the way we experience the khandhas and change what we do with them. Fabrication is built into all of them. So how is, so the boundaries are blurred? Right, right. Okay. But in this case, it's the fabrication. Fa fabrication, as we'll see later on, is, is identified with intention. And intention is largely an element of choice. In this case, which ones are you going to focus on? very quickly. The, the, the fabrication here would be the intention first to set up the, the question. What do you see this as? And second, well, even before that, to even focus on the issue. 
there's an element of choice to focus on this issue. Or if you, there's kind of a blur in your, in your sensory realm, you say, what is that? And you look at it and you say, oh, that must be... Bang. Okay, the, the choice to look, that's fabrication, that's intention. You've intentionally looked at it, and then you say, okay, that's purple. That's the perception. And if you hadn't made that choice to even focus on it, it wouldn't have registered. The act of perception wouldn't have happened. When the thought seems to rise out of the unconsciousness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it becomes a fabrication only when we become aware of it? When you notice it. Well, there's the potential that's there. It's, it's not that you're fabricating things out of nothing here. There's always the potential for any of these things to come up. And it's your choice to focus on it or not. Once you focused on it, then you, you know, put a label on it, and then you fabricate it even more. You say, "What's it?" There's this—you know—you've you've had this experience in meditation many times, I'm sure. You're sitting, and all of a sudden, there's this kind of little stirring in your awareness. And part of you says, "What's that?" And you look at, "Oh, that's a thought of, you know, the food I had yesterday from from a meal." And then from that, you start adding on to that. Well, what, was it good? Did, you know, could I have made it better? And then you make it in the question about tomorrow's meal you know, and all this other stuff. And you created this whole issue out of that initial little stirring. The fabrication here was the choice to focus on it. And what was the stirring? The stirring was, at that point, it was the potential for a thought. But, is that, but it's the aggregate of fabrication still? It hasn't quite made a full-blown full aggregate yet. Like they say, it's from, from fabrication-ness or fabrication-hood basically from the potential for a fabrication. You focus on it and you turn it into a full-blown thought. Yes? So the, the aggregate does not have the life of its own outside from right. the perceiver of it. Right. And I'm getting kind of thrown off by the, the languaging a little bit in here. Maybe that... Where it says, and why is it called feeling? Mm-hmm. Because it feels. So mm-hmm. my understanding would be clarified if I read it Mm-hmm. Because by saying because it feels, it's giving the kind of yeah yeah. So, yeah. I think that's a problem of problem of the English language because in the Pali the word it isn't there. Why is it called feeling? Because it feels. There's no subject or object put on it yet, and then then the question of what's the object of the feeling? Then there's the. But it, here he is talking about an activity. And it's easy to see how the, the four of these mental khandhas are you know, sort of intentional. The question is, how is form intentional? And if you, sometimes you'll have this experience in your meditation where you're, you're very conscious of the form of your body, and other times it seems to dissolve. And you realize it's up to you to choose whether you're going to turn that sort of potential for a form into an explicit form or not. Does that help? The purpose of all this is that it's, these are verbs, okay? They're activities, they're not nouns. We, we turn them into nouns, even when we turn them into the word process and nouns. Jeff? So would, would you say that if there's a stirring in my knee and I don't focus on it and I don't have pain? Maybe that's what happens in the jhanas. You focus, keep staying on your breath, and mm-hmm. there's no pain. Mm-hmm. The potential for pain is always there, but you decided not to focus on it. It doesn't register, your mind doesn't... Get involved with it. Mm-hmm. That means you've left. That means you've left your. 
In, in a state like that, you're actually more consciously aware of your intention. Yeah. The intention to focus on it as opposed to not focusing on it. And although there is that, you know, there are these little errant voices in your mind that pay, 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 pay attention over here. Okay, the choice has already been made in, the, in sort of the underground level. And the whole purpose of meditation is to get down into that underground level and sort of dig these things up so you're more consciously aware of them. So going along with that thought a little bit and carrying it, um, so you're, you're breathing along, you're, you're comfortable, you're focused on your breath, and then you get this pain mm -hmm. in the right leg, mm -hmm. and it registers as pain, and I'm going to stay with my breath, I'm going to breathe, I'm going to breathe. It keeps hurting more and more, and then the thought, maybe I'm doing damage mm -hmm. It's pretty complex because it's very rare that you're going to have any one aggregate at a time. You usually get a whole set. Okay, you've got the, the potential for the pain is there. You paid attention to it enough, okay, you've made it a pain. You say, well, I'm not, next step is I have the choice to get worried about it or not get worried about it. You say, at this time, I'm not too worried about it, so you put it aside. And then when you keep coming back, okay, it's another choice that keeps made to come back to the pain. So you keep recreating the pain. And then there's the added fabrication on top of that. So what about, you know, am I doing permanent damage to me in the future? And then if you remind yourself, hey, nobody has ever, you know, wounded themselves from sitting for an hour. You know. Maybe you sit eight hours, yeah, there's going to be problems. But, you know, for just one hour, it's not going to do permanent damage. And so there's kind of a back and forth. And it's, the whole purpose here is to realize that the role that your intention plays is important. If you decide, I'm not going to pay any attention here so that you're less and less a victim of these events that you've created, and you're more and more in charge. Because you realize the power of your intention to shape these things. Okay, but so then you say, I'm not going to pay any attention here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then the thought comes up uh, that, that you're doing something. You're still doing something, but now it feels instead of accepting what is, mm -hmm. you're being averse to what is, you're, you're running away from it by I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. Well, so, actually, it's, the, it's your, your concept that, that there is something that there is, what is independent from your choices. That's what the Buddha is trying to take apart. So is this, you ask yourself, is this something useful to deal with? You don't have to be averse to it. Is this something useful to deal with? Do I want to keep on creating this particular pain, this particular story? Or do I want to choose not to continue with the story? And you realize, if I continue with the story, it's going to shoot my entire meditation. If I decide not to continue with the story, I can get my mind settled down better. So without a question of aversion or lack of aversion, or saying, well, there's this given that I have to accept or not accept, you realize, I've got some power to shape the reality here by my choices. So what's the most useful reality I want to shape? direction of, of really looking at that pain 
and taking it apart and trying to figure out exactly where it is and then thinking, you know, maybe there is something I can do in how I'm holding myself, how I'm, that ultimately is going to heal that. So, it depends. It depends on where you are in your concentration. Mm-hmm. If you're just beginning, mm-hmm. you say, "Okay, I don't, <laughs> I'm not ready to handle the pain yet. I'm going to stay right here at this comfortable spot that I've got going with my breath." From that point on, the next step you have is, "Well, let's see if I can use the breath to work with the pain." Right. And so you use your breathing to work through the pain and breathe through it and breathe into it, breathe around it, whatever if you find works. Then you find there are pains that you even, no matter how well you breathe or how well you hold the body, the pain's still going to be there. And you say, if I'm ready to deal with the pain in order to take it apart, to see the mental processes that go along with the pain, okay, I'll do that. But if you find that everything's getting blurry by focusing on the pain, you say, I'm not ready for this yet, you go back to your breath. And the fact that you know that it's a lot of that element of the pain was your intention. You decide, okay, I'm, I'm not going to take that. In, I'm not going to follow through that intention for the time being. Give myself more time to get the mind centered, get it more concentrated, so that my powers of concentration are stronger. Then I can go back and deal with the pain again. What this means is it puts you more in charge. You've got these potentials out there. I mean, some of them, of course, are, you know, come you know, straight at you. When we talk about the potential to form, this car is coming right at you down the road. You can't just simply say, I'm just going to ignore that car and pretend it's not there. <laughs> but you do have a choice. What am I going to do? When you sit down and meditate, what he's telling you is that you, know, you have more of these choices in your, inside your body, inside your realm of awareness, where you're more responsible. So you have these choices. You're not compelled to have to do one thing a particular way or another. So usually what happens with me is uh, the commitment, I'm going to stay here Mm -hmm. in this position no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's there. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it it varies back and forth between... if I just say, I'm just going to breathe and ignore that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that blows me right out of the water. I mean, then what? I feel like I'm in denial and all kinds of other, you know, uh-huh. I create uh-huh. worse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than if I just uh, sort of can lovingly mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. pain. Yeah. Well, you can say, okay, I'll be nice to the pain, I'm not going to get involved with it. And, but I'm going to work on my breath until the point where I can really do more with the pain. That way you don't have all the, t- you know, the sort of entanglement of denial and all that fabrication that goes along with that. Yeah. So. One more question we go. You mentioned that, so, so the fabrication part, the mental formation, that's mm-hmm. supposed to be the predominant mm-hmm. uh, factor among all of these. So, right. like, for example, a person who is... Um, You don't. You don't extinguish any of them. It's just that you no longer have clinging related to them. And what happens is, at the end of this particular lifetime, this particular body, for a Buddha or for an Arahant, no new kindness are being created. And then they're totally freed. 
But for the, as long as there's an experience of space and time, there's going to be an element of fabrication. I mean, the Buddha was operating in space and time. But in nirvana, there's no space and time. So there's no fabrication. <laughs> there was a hand over here. Yes? I was on a more general level. I was struck by the element of recursion. Mm-hmm. Russian balls. Yeah, yeah. Mental fabrication is, is this not the, the Buddhist way of analyzing how we are able to be always? We go through like recreating the world mm-hmm. inside our minds. Mm-hmm. Only it's a very selective yeah. model for all of it. Mm-hmm. It contains only the things we choose. That we choose, yeah. And some, it's, it's not you know, you know, fabrication out of nothing. There are these potentials that come from our past karma. But we're always making arrangements for our, you know, to create our present world. What we exclude, what we include. Yeah. And that includes a picture of ourselves. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. This is doing those same things. Right. Mm-hmm. projected into the future. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's why the khandas can be created and turned into a path, is you change that world you create around it first. And then you take apart that new world, that you, the better world, that's easier to take apart. Yes? Uh, just going back to consciousness, um, what would be the difference between consciousness and awareness, or is there a You can set up a vocabulary where you could make a difference between the two. Um, here, I think they're talking about just basic awareness at the senses. Basic, so it is really. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we work at, you know, as they, you know, they have a vocabulary for, you know, it's the mindfulness vocabulary, alertness. These are, these are separate from consciousness. We're just, consciousness is just talking about the basic awareness you have at the senses. Okay. Time to break for lunch. It's right after lunch. And we plunge into what is probably the least clear part of the discussion. (laughs) So, try extra hard to pay attention. Look on page five. The passage in the middle of the page where the monk is asking, what is the cause, what is the condition for the delineation of the different aggregates? Delineation here means your ability to pick them out and separate them from kind of the the background, this buzzing mass of our awareness. How can you delineate these different aggregates? And the Buddha's answer is for the aggregate of form, the cause for what makes it, allows us to delineate it is the four great existence, which are earth, water, fire, and wind. In other words, those four properties we were talking about earlier. If it weren't for those, we wouldn't have a sense of form. These things give resistance. You try to punch a feeling and you go right through, but you know, there's something solid, you, you punch it, there's a, there's a resistance to it. For the next three aggregates, contact is the cause that allows us to delineate them. It's the cause for feeling, for perception, for fabrication. The problem here is when we talk about contact, if you look into the teachings on dependent core arising, the word contact appears two different spots in the lineup. And it means two different things. In one, in the major place where people most notice it is sensory contact. You have the six sense bases. There's going to be contact at the senses, and you'll see some of the descriptions of how 
feeling arises after sensory contact, and on top of that, then there becomes perception, and then the mind latches onto it and takes over with its fabrication. That's one kind of contact that forms the basis for seeing these things. The other kind of contact <coughs> is hidden away in the factor on name and form, which we'll get to in a minute. As the passage immediately below says, from ignorance comes fabrication. With fabrications as a condition, there comes consciousness. From consciousness as a condition, there comes name and form. Well, in name and form, one of, those, one of the name factors is contact. And they're talking about the contact between physical and mental events. And this is more of an internal sort of thing. It's your, the contact between your mind and your body, basically. Your inner sense of the body. Like when you close your eyes, as we said earlier, you know that you've got a body. But you also know that you have a mind, because there's a mind that's aware of the body. And there's a kind of contact between the two. Um, the texts call it, let's see, form creates resistance contact. Let's see, where's the other one? Excuse me. If it weren't for metal events, we wouldn't have what they call designation contact, which is where the mind puts names on things, records things, registers things. And if it weren't for the mind, we wouldn't be able to register the fact that there's something making resistance. So without the, the, the contact between your internal sense of body and mind, this is another type of contact. And this also is what allows us to sense when there's feeling, when there's perception, when there's fabrication. And finally, with name and form as the cause, name and form as a condition, there's a delineation of the aggregate consciousness. On page 8 to 9. Look on page 9, with the beginning with like the earth property. It's, excuse me, at the very top of the page. Five means of propagation, which are seeds, cutting propagations, um, joints and stems. Okay, if you suppose you're planting them, but there were no earth and water, okay, the seed wouldn't ger germinate. Okay. If you had the seeds, but there were no earth and water, uh, if, you had, if the seeds were wounded, but you still had earth and water, then still they wouldn't germinate. It's when you've got the seeds and the earth and the water and the sun that they germinate. And then the Buddha gives the paragraph that says, like the earth property, monks, is how the four standing spots for consciousness should be seen. Those four standing spots are the, the four other aggregates. Form, feeling, perception, fabrication. Like the liquid property is, so that means the water here, that's how passion and delight should be seen. And consciousness is to be seen like a seed. In other words, you've got these other aggregates. Conscious comes along and lands on them. And then from that, thought proliferations grow. Your experience of all kinds of things, the activity of the mind comes from that, the addition of consciousness. 
Just because consciousness has something to land on, that's how you know that it's there. Um, there's an image on the previous page, page 8. The paragraph towards the middle of the page, it says, Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall, having windows on the north, the south, or the east. When the sun rises and the ray has entered by way of the eastern window, where does it land? Okay, it lands on the western wall. If there's no western wall, it lands on the ground. If there's no ground, it lands on the water. They had a view that the earth was floating on water. And if you don't believe it, go down and dig a well and you find the water comes up. <laughs> it makes sense, you know? Okay, and if there's no water, then it doesn't land. And this doesn't say that there's no consciousness, it's just there's no place for it to land. Without a landing spot, you can't really delineate that this is consciousness. We talked earlier about that, the notion of consciousness without a surface. It also means a consciousness that you can't point to. You can't point to it because at that point the other four kindas are not around. It becomes a consciousness that you can't point to, it has no surface, it has no feature. Yes? It's called vinyanang anidasanang, and literally it means without a surface or without anything you can point to. It's a consciousness of nibbana. If this tape gets out on the website, I'm sure I'm going to have lots of mail for that one. <laughs> Difficult for me. It's because of the other khandas that you, we sense each of the khandas. They kind of play off of each other. If there weren't the other khandas there, you couldn't delineate that this is this and that's that. They all have to have something they bounce off of or something that they land on. Yeah, you can't just have one khanda. There are always going to be the others. You will tend to emphasize one, say, in your meditation or in your awareness, to be focusing on one particular one, but you realize wherever you have feeling, there's also going to be a perception. There's also going to be fabrication. Consciousness is, is sort of the wild card in this. What happens with consciousness when there are no khandas around? No other condas around. Is it, when you are, you may just say this and then you can redefine it. Using consciousness in this way, is it this? It sounds like it's different from saying it's all consciousness. Mm -hmm. Then what is it, it all? Is there a word? The word for all. Actually, the Buddha says there. there he uses the word all but he limits it only to the things within the six sense, sense realms. Outside of that, he does The word all, he actually defines it at one point as limited to the six senses and their objects. He says, outside of that, he just doesn't want to use the term. Well, it's nothing you can point to. There's nothing that you could say, well, this is this and that's that. There are no places where you can draw lines. Consciousness of the six. Yes, outside of the 
sensory consciousness doesn't exist outside of them now. The consciousness you can't point to. <laughs> as soon as you point it to it, you put it within the realm of the six. Because you know. sometimes the word consciousness would be used to convey that, so I'm just trying yeah. to find it. And once or twice in the canon, he uses the word consciousness in precisely that way, in the sort of outside sense. But he's very con- careful to say it's, it's not in space, it's not in time, and it's not, um, you can't define it. So the word consciousness used in relation to the aggregate is different than the word consciousness used in the four foundations of mindfulness? It's not used in the four foundations of mindfulness. There's the word jitta, which means mind, which is something else. Mind, so okay, so somebody else defines as consciousness, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? I'm touching on the key point of the word epistemology we're talking about. So what is epistemology here? What can be sensed, what can be talked about. Mm-hmm. And anything you might postulate as existing outside of that sphere, something that has an immaterial existence, that would be a mental fabrication. Well, I mean, there are, there are immaterial things that, you know, we, we can sense feelings, we can sense perceptions which are actually immaterial, but they're within the, this realm of sense consciousness. The, so if you were to be Plato and postulate the world of, of right. ideals, right. Mm-hmm. which can't be sensed except in Right. Remember, the Buddha is always, his question is always, what's worth talking about to put an end to suffering? And the, the kind of objects that would get you outside into that area, the discussions that would get you into that area would spend, take a lot of your time. You like the old image of the arrow. I mean, you've got the arrow stuck in your chest and you want to know, well, who shot the arrow? What kind of wood is it made out of? Where would the feathers come from? You die. In the next passage, I shouldn't say next passage, go back to page six. <laughs> I promise that when I get back to the monastery, I'm going to reorganize this and put it out on the web in a more organized form. Okay. He defines the different factors of dependent core arising. Look under name and form. You have feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. There's actually one version of dependent core arising where the Buddha says consciousness depends on name and form, and name and form depends on consciousness. So these are the kind of the two root factors in here. And so notice you've got intention and attention there. Intention, of course, is sankara. Intention is another word for fabrication. Hmm? We're page on page six, under the paragraph that defines name and form. What did you say intention was? Intention, the Pali word is jetana, but in other places he identifies intention also as fabrication, or the essence of fabrication. So you've got fabrication there. You've also got the contact we were talking earlier about, the contact between your internal sense of the mind and the body. And then attention, the questions you ask the questions you pay attention to. And it's because we can 
change both the intention and the way we pay attention. This is why we can take these khandhas and turn them into a path rather than just continuing to suffer forever. To get to back to the point we were making earlier, that you know, experience is not just a given. You're playing a role in shaping it all the time. And because you have that role, you can make a difference. You can decide, you can have the intention to look at things in a different way and to change the way they are. So like in your case, if you decide you don't want to focus on the pain, you don't have to you know, beat yourself for denying the pain. You just realize, I have, I have the choice of either making that into a pain or not making it into a pain. So it becomes less of a question of denial and aversion and more of how can I skillfully approach this? What's the most beneficial way of approaching a particular experience? Move down here further. Consciousness, as far as it's defined in the six khandhas, again, five khandhas is the six classes of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, and intellect consciousness. So that delineates the realm of consciousness that the Buddha is talking about in this teaching. Fabrications. The passage on fabrications is interesting. It defines this process of fabrication into bodily fabrication, verbal, and mental. Bodily fabrication is defined as the breath. It's the process that creates your sense of the body. It's by the way you breathe that you sense your body in a particular way. And have you ever gotten to the point where you don't breathe? If you don't breathe, you don't have a sense of the body. In very refined states of concentration, you get so the in and out breath stops. And when that stops, your sense of the, this solid body that you had starts to dissolve. So it's the, it's the breath that creates your sense of the body. On one level, it's, you know, of course, if you didn't have a breath, you'd die. <laughs> you would have a sense of the body if you're dead. But when you're, when you're awake and alive, in a very strong state of concentration and the breath stops, the sense of the body begins to turn into like a mist, and then the form and the shape of the body begins to get very vague. So the breath is the factor that fashions your sense of the body. Verbal fabrications here, the Buddha talks about directed thought and evaluation. We're talking about the mental processes that create words. Direct, and these are the two processes that actually would create sentences. Directed thought is when you direct your thought to a particular subject. And then evaluation is the comment you make on that subject. So these are the processes that underlie you know, a, a full, complete thought, a sentence. Mental fabrications are feelings and perceptions. So if you look at these, four, these three factors, name and form, consciousness, and fabrications, you see the same terms turning up over and over and over again. Basically, the, the five khandhas kind of play off each other. There's no one particular khanda that's more basic than the others. They all kind of lean on each other. The image being that if they're leaning on each other and you can take one of them out, then they all fall down. You want to take, that's how you're taking it apart eventually.
Now, what underlies all this is ignorance. And look how they define ignorance. Hmm? Yeah, isn't it? You know, that first one, especially, not knowing stress. That, that sounds pretty good. Yes. <laughs> it's not that you don't experience it, you don't understand it. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Everybody knows stress to some extent or another, but the question is who, how many people actually understand it, what it is, understand that it is the clinging to the aggregates. And what keeps this process going, remember these, you know, all these, uh, the fabrications, the consciousness, name and form, all these different khandhas that we're talking about are activities, are things we do. And as long as we think that they're worthwhile, we'll keep on doing them. One, as long as we realize they're worthwhile, and two, as long as we think that's the only thing we can do. Yes, and we're going to keep on doing them. If you ever, however you see, okay, that whatever you do is going to end up in stress, one level of stress or another, especially if you cling to it. And also if you realize there's a way of practice that puts, brings an end to stress, that opens the possible, why should I keep on creating these things the way I've been doing in the past? Maybe I should create them in another way, eventually to lead to the point where creation stops, the activity of creation stops in the mind. Because remember what the Buddha said the very first, well, that first passage we talked about the dog running around the stake. Everything we create is going to be a khanda. And the question is, do we want to create it in such a way, fashion it in such a way so it creates more suffering, or fashion it in such a way that it leads to the end of suffering? And when you realize that there is a choice, then you would naturally want to go to the end. And as long as the mind doesn't realize, doesn't think there's a choice, you're just going to keep on creating the same old stuff over and over again. You may change the picture show, but it's still a picture show. Or you may change your plumage, but it's still plumage. So. Any questions on those four factors? And we could spend the whole day just on one of them, but <laughs> yes. Can you hold still for an hour? We'll get there. <laughs> yes. No, uh -uh. That's, that's the only point they mentioned then. What's interesting, of course, is direct thought and evaluation are two factors in jhana, the very first jhana. So again, it's one of those cases where you take something that you've been doing in the past that creates suffering and you train it so that it leads to the end, it becomes part of the path to the end of suffering. You direct your thought to the breath, you evaluate it in such a way that it gets less and less and less stressful, more and more comfortable. So the mind can settle down. Got a question, sir? Um, could how about not knowing stress and you know people who don't even know they're in stress? Like, is, is that part of what this is? Like, I'm thinking about how can people kill each other and not know there's like it almost seems like not knowing that this is, this is suffering. Well, they figure that, that they, they feel they have no choice. Yeah. Or they feel that this is the end of stress, <laughs> the end of suffering. If I can get rid of this person, yeah. then we will be. <laughs> wipe out this nation and then, yeah. you know, it would be the end of the terrorist yeah. problem, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. We've been there before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Seems to be backwards. Yeah. Am I to understand naming and forming mm-hmm. are the cause, or that name and form is a pre-existence already thereness of it is the cause of this aggregate? It doesn't cause the aggregate. It's what allows us to delineate the aggregate. It's what allows us to perceive it. Like if you shine a light into the air, it's the dust in the air that allows you to see the you know the, the beam of light going out. So by naming and forming, we can tell that there's consciousness. Yeah. Then consciousness. No, it means that we, that's how we can tell and delineate. Okay, this is consciousness right here. It's like as I said, shining a light through the dusty air, and you can see because of the dust motes, you can see the light on the dust motes. That allows you to see the beam of light where the light is going. The dust motes don't cause the light. This is what the delineate means in that paragraph. It's what allows us to pick it out and identify, oh, that's where the consciousness is. So the beam would be the name and the form? The dust motes are the name and the form, and the beam of light is the consciousness. Yes. There is a type of consciousness that exists without name and form. Yeah. So how can we know that if you can't, if you don't have the dust to see it? Well, that's why they call it consciousness you can't point to. <laughs> but you can, you can experience it. it. There is an experience of this consciousness. <laughs> if you can point to it, I'll talk about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why the Buddha only mentions it once or twice in the canon and leaves it alone. So Just to Well, no. I mean, if you if you experienced it, then you realize that part of that experience is realizing it's the end of stress and suffering. There is no stress and suffering in that dimension. There are other places where he calls it that there is a dimension where these things stop. Or there's a dimension where you know the limitations of words and the limitation of what can be described. And it's not that you, you're ignorant about what lies beyond there or that you're sort of noncommittal about what lies beyond there. You know what's beyond there, but you also know you can't describe it. And so is that a definition in the mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a useful concept to have as a pointer, knowing that you know, you're not committing spiritual suicide here. But otherwise, you just leave the concept alone. Yes, Nancy. So I'm back to where we were this morning. Um, I was astonished when you said Buddha had never defined different. And then looking at this level of analysis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know, these fine, fine distinctions, mm-hmm. it would seem reasonable that he would then have taken dukkha apart and all these different kinds, and, and yet you say he never defined dukkha, so, which, as we were, were this morning, yeah. so much of this argument rests on understanding what he's referring to when he says dukkha. Uh-huh. 
They talk about three kinds of dukkha. There's the dukkha of, you know, regular physical pain. No, this, this is actually in the, in the canon. I remember the passage just now, mm-hmm. as you were getting aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I started roaming around for my defense. <laughs> there's, there's, the dukkha of, there's the dukkha of change, and there's the dukkha of fabrication. Okay, the, the dukkha of pain, physical pain. We don't, and again, it's one of those things you don't have to define for other people. Are you in pain? Yes, I'm in pain. We don't say, please define the term for me before we... You, know, you can describe it, but it's never really defined. The dukkha that comes with inconstancy is if you're trying to find some sort of rest on something and it changes, there's a, there's a kind of a dukkha, there's a, a pain in there, a level of pain. And the third one is the dukkha of fabrication where you have to keep creating little things in order to keep going. The amount of effort that has to go into that, the amount of mental tension that goes into creating things. That's also a level of dukkha. But in terms of actually defining the term dukkha, he will describe many different things that you know, are stressful and that do, do cause suffering. But he assumes that dukkha is something that everybody knows, that everybody's had experience with. And so he's starting from a term that he feels doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be defined. There's one of those commentarial der- der- derivations which seems kind of artificial. I mean, it's the opposite of sukha, which is pleasure, or ease, or well-being. But this, this is one of those things he says, okay, here's a term that everyone can relate to, perhaps in a different and idiosyncratic way. They've all, because everyone has experienced birth, aging, illness, death, separation from what's loved, um, having to be with things that you don't love, having your your hopes to, hopes um, not met with. Then he says the common factor of all those things is dukkha. But that's the closest you get to a definition. Well, that's more than you said this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, anything else? Yes. I don't know that one. Yeah, Gil, what do you have to say about that one? He says you're, you gave a derivation of the word dukkha as a wheel that's out of balance. nice. I, I like the idea that each person can think about their suffering in the way that they suffer. <laughs> and, however, and however you feel your suffering, we'll focus on that and then realize that there's that element of suffering of that in everything you do. I must admit, in the, in the course of your practice, it gets more refined. 
you come in with some really blatant suffering, and you know, I've, you know, my my parents have committed suicide. My what was it, Patanjara? Her, let's see, she, her husband dies, so she takes her children back to see her family. And on the way, she has to cross this raging river, and she can't carry both children at the same time. So she carries one of the children across the river, and turns around, and she sees the other child that she left behind in the first bank being carried off by an eagle, and then she turns around and her other child is getting killed by something else. And so here she is, she's lost her husband, she's lost her children, she's pretty distraught, so she goes back to her family and discovers that the night before in the storm that killed her husband, her parents were also killed by a lightning bolt. And so there's the funeral pyre with the smoke of her parents you know, rising from the top. And she goes kind of crazy. And so she starts from really blatant, blatant suffering. And sort of, you know, as she settles back down, her, her sense of what's stressful and what's not stressful. And this is why I use the word stress, because in states of intense concentration, you don't really feel that you're suffering, but there is an element of stress. And your sense of stress gets more and more refined with practice. And you say, well, even this isn't good enough yet, well, that's not good enough yet. And you just keep working, 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 until you finally get to the point where there is no more burden on the mind at all. Oh. Yes? He would talk about higher, higher focuses for consciousness or higher um, landing places for consciousness. Like if your consciousness is focused on the level of being of a dog, that's a very low level of consciousness. If it's focused on being on the level of a Brahma, that's a higher level. They, they, in the Buddhist terms, they call these stations of consciousness, places where consciousness will stand. He's leaving a sense of awareness. And basically he's saying, discover the dimension where there is no suffering. And he doesn't define it as a state of consciousness or a station of consciousness or level of consciousness. The closest definition, the term he uses there is, is dimension, ayatana. and bugs and things. And it'd be curious to know what kind of perceptions they have. You know, the world the world as seen by an ant. And they have a certain level of perception. You know, go here, don't go there. That kind of thing. But yeah, all 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 animals have all five khandas. Except for the Brahmas who don't have the form. There's a state of Brahma level where they, they don't have form, physical form at all. It's just a formless being. Okay. And the next few pages, they go through the individual khandas one by one. And 
those passages are pretty self-explanatory, especially seeing as we don't have much time this afternoon. Just one or two points I wanted to point out to you. Page 8. We've been on this passage once before. Fourth nutriments for the establishment of beings who have taken birth or for, those, for the support of those in search of a place to be born. Now that's an interesting concept, beings, beings in search for a place to be born. The Pali word is sampavasin, S-A-M-B-H-A-V-I, sampavasin, And the notion is that there are these beings, there's a state of being, sort of a state between the moment of death and the next, the next birth, and you're looking for a place to go. And so on this level, this particular discussion, he does talk about beings. You know, beings who die and take rebirth. But again, it's one of those topics that he doesn't. It's not really explored that much in the different canons. Strict Theravada orthodoxy says there is no such thing. That you know, as soon as you die, poop, the next moment you're born. But just anecdotal evidence from around the world <laughs> indicates that there's some space sometimes in between. But anyway, what's, what's the food for these? In the midst, either while they're searching for a place to be born or they have when they've taken birth. Physical food, grossly refined. Contact, consciousness, and intellectual intention. These are the four things where, that would act as food for the state of a being a being. Okay? And the thing is that where there is passion and delight for these things, that's where you take birth. That's where you keep being going. So this, of course, means if there were no passion, delight, and craving, there would be no rebirth. In other words, even though the food is there, you look at it, I don't want that anymore. That's the end of rebirth. Where there's passion, delight, and craving for the nutriment of physical food, consciousness lands there and grows. I don't know if I explained that, but I think it's an interesting concept. <laughs> consciousness lands there and grows. Okay, where consciousness lands and grows. In, in other passages, the Buddha talks about craving as the fuel that keeps a flame going. There, in in the and sort of the physics of the, the time of the Buddha, there was a question about how does a f fire go from one object to another object? How does that flame make that leap? And the idea being that a flame has to feed in order to continue burning. So what is, what's its food as it's going from one object to the next object? And they said the wind was the, was the food for the flame at that point. Oxygen. Yeah. So in this case, um, craving is the food for beings as they're going from one breath to the next. It's the craving as the oxygen that keeps that particular process going. In, in this reference to being, is this only like 
uh, living beings, or would this also be dream beings or hallucination beings? It's the similar process. In fact, I've found that when you try to explain the process of rebirth, it, the best way of explaining it is as a person goes from one dream to the next at night. And the question is, well, you know, what was it that went from the first dream to the second dream? He said, that's, that's a stupid question. And that's basically how the Buddha <laughs> treats the issue of rebirth. And he said, you go from one sort of one world to another world. And the question is, well, what, goes, what does the going? He said, well, nothing went, but just there was this new experience of a new world. Because, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn says, wherever you go, there you are. You know, <laughs> you know the wherever you are, it's here. You know? So the new experience is going to be right here for you, but it's going to be a different, it's like tuning into a different station. And we've got all the radio waves from San Francisco and San Jose and whatever coming through here. But it's which station are you tuned into? Which level of awareness are you tuned into? So, But the craving is what takes you from one dream to the next, and it's also what takes you from one life to the next. It's a, it's a similar process, just more extreme. Where consciousness lands and grows, name and form alights. Again, that's, they don't explain this anywhere, but it's an interesting thing. All these things come together at this one point. Where name and form alights, there's the growth of fabrications. Now, fabrication performs the basis, it forms the basis for our experience of all the different khandhas as we go through the rest of that particular life. Where there's a growth of fabrications, there's a production of renewed becoming in the future. And there's future birth, aging, death, together, I tell you, with sorrow, affliction, and despair. And to give a sense of the artificiality of all of this, you have the image of the, the painted woman or the painted man again. Every time that image comes up, it's, it's, it emphasizes the artificiality of it. It looks like a real thing, but you know it's not real. The image of a painted woman or a painted man. And if we had a, <laughs> I mean, you can, you could have a drawing. You know, you could have a painting like Vermeer or somebody who's just extremely realistic. But you know, if you look on the other side, there's nobody there. And this is what we do, and we create these beings. It's a, it's an artificial process, which would be fun if it weren't for all the sorrow and lamentation and despair. <laughs> Well, it's in this particular body has you know, lost its interest in food. It's gone as far as it goes. But that's not the only kind of food. Remember, there's the food of contact, the food of consciousness, and the food of um, intellectual intention. Yeah. Okay. And what often happens is you, you know you, you know you can't stay here anymore, and the question comes up: Where am I going to go now? And just like as when you fall asleep, this image comes up in the mind. And they don't discuss it in the canon, but in the commentaries they talk about two particular types of image. One is the image of your past karma, the things you've done, as we talk about, your life passing before your eyes, before you die. And the next is of where you could go. 
and depending on you know what that past karma was, it has a strong impact on these images of where you could go based on that. And if you have your wits about you, which very few people do when they're dying, uh, you can say, I don't want to go there. I don't have any delight, any passion, any interest in that. So whatever image comes up, says, no, 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 no. And that sort of runs out of, you know, that the catalog of movies runs out. And then you, you know. but, what happened, but at least you have some choice. Sometimes one particular image will keep coming back again and again and again and again. You know, you've got to go there. Well, this is, why we, this is why we meditate, so we have a certain amount of control at that point. Because most people, when they're leaving the body, they're just going to latch on anything that comes by, because they know they can't stay here, good or bad. So, so keep that in mind. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Again, the, these, the interrelationships among the aggregates are so complex. Consciousness can actually feed on consciousness. This is why they don't say, well, just head for consciousness in and of itself and you'll be okay. Because sometimes it's the aggregate of consciousness feeding on the aggregate of consciousness, which doesn't get you out. So here we've got consciousness landing on the food, and one of the types of food is consciousness. So there's kind of an incestuous... You know, if we were to think of the, the different aggregates as a family. This kind of incestuous relationship, you would go from one, one act of consciousness feeds on another act of consciousness. Which is particularly the case when you're in, a, in, a, in, the, in one, of the, one of the formless jhanas. Consciousness becomes the object of consciousness at that point. So that's a kind of food for the mind. The consciousness will then feed on that. Keep feeding, 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 just on that state of awareness. But there is, an, there is the activity of feeding that's going on. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, this is why the Buddha doesn't say, well, just go for consciousness in and of itself and you're okay. Because you can get in a state of concentration where just the consciousness is feeding on consciousness itself. And I didn't make this clear earlier, but the, the word for feeding is also the word for clinging, when you take sustenance. This is why when they're teaching you meditation in, in Thailand, they say when you get to a state of consciousness, Okay, try to destroy that state of consciousness. When it feels like it's just consciousness in and of itself, and you get really good at staying there, and they say, see if you can destroy it. And if you can destroy it, then it's just one part of the aggregate of consciousness. And if you find that you can't, well, then you found something really valuable. Aggregate of consciousness 
as opposed to sort of my common understanding of consciousness mm -hmm. as something that is desirable and all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. all Okay, your, con your sense of consciousness as something desirable and all-inclusive is also part of the aggregate. That's the scary part of all this. But there's, there's something back there that's not, that doesn't have anything to do with your concept, which is much, which is much better. And that's, that's what the, the point of that, the concept of you know, consciousness that you can't point to. Is there another word besides consciousness? Well, sometimes they call it the deathless. The deathless. The deathless. Mm. No, no, for the aggregate of consciousness. Mm -mm, mm. That's why it's just the aggregate of consciousness. Yeah. But this, this is the the challenging part of the meditation is you get to these really nice states of yeah. awareness. Yeah. And you say, "Boy, I'd like just to hang out here for a while." And and you're, if you have a good teacher, the teacher will say, "Okay, hang out for a while, see what it's like, or get to know it." Say, Yeah, you say, well, you, and then the question is, where have you gotten? What's the sign? Is there a signpost? It says, "Welcome to the third jhana." No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's not there. So what you do is, if if it seems good, you hang out there for a while until you get to the sense, okay, there's still an element of stress in here. There's still an element of you know burdensomeness to this. What do I do now? And then you look around to see what is it you're doing that's that's creating that sense of stress or burdensomeness. You stop that, and then you find yourself in another state. And then you hang out there for a while, and then you get used to it. It's like going from a dark room into a really bright room. At first it seems to be all light. But then as you get, you know, your eyes begin to adjust to the light, you begin to see, oh, there are shapes and there are forms and there are colors and other things in here. And so you just keep going, going. Wherever you can sense so stress, you take it apart, take it apart, take it apart. And even when you have the sense of really, really glowing, bright, infinite consciousness, hang out there for a while, and then see if you can take that apart too. And then if you can do that, then if you can't, okay, then you know that you can. If you can, you then you find something better. Yes? So this may be where you're going with this, but you said that the, the point of deconstructing the founders was so that we did not identify with them. That was an approach to mm -hmm. um, deconstructing the self. Mm -hmm. Well, this consciousness that you cannot point to, so that's what's left when you deconstruct the founders, mm -hmm. so is that not? What's in there to say that there'd be a self or a not self? Well, what is this that's not? There is something now you're telling us that this thought, this consciousness you cannot point to. Mm -hmm. But why would you want to identify it as a self? Well, why not? Well, if you're in that state, you don't want. There, if you have any sense of identification at all, you can't get there. So is it now? It's sounding like an Atman. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is this now that seems to be locked over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I let the cat out of the bag. Because, <laughs> as the Buddha said, you can't get there as long as you're clinging to a sense of self. And so, either, as I said, the two approaches. One, you just drop the whole question about self and focus on the issues of stress. Or if you can't drop the question immediately, then you try to deconstruct it by going through, well, is this myself? Is that myself? Is this myself? Is that myself? Well, no. The whole notion of self or not self, remember, they're perceptions. And as long as you feel that there are important perceptions to hold on to, that you've got to label something, you know, one or the other, then you're still trapped in the condos.
Well, no, there'll be there'll be a sense there'll be a sense of identification. You know, if you're something you really like, you're, you're going to identify with it. And as long as there's that act, you know, that the passion and delight that goes into identification, it's not a question of whether you call it a self or not. But as long as there's the passion and delight, you're still not free. I, I'm asking now an ontological question. What is this that's left? Can't say. Can't point to it. You point. It's it's in that direction, okay? <laughs> That's the element of pointing you can do. But again, the Buddha refuses to say whether it exists, doesn't exist, both, neither. Because again, ontology is something that's bound in the realm of the khandhas. But the Buddha says it's you know you get to this point and you can you say you can know it. It's an, something you can experience it, but that's all. Just saying. No, there's no universe in there either. Well, because there's no boundary. It still sounds... I mean, it's sounding like mind only school, it's sounding like Atman, it's sounding like God, it's sounding like <laughs> there is some great something out there that you will become one with. Not that you become one with, it's just something that you touch. The word they, they use the word touch in the canon. But they don't talk about merging, which would be the coming becoming one with. <laughs> well, it doesn't do all that much good. I mean, <laughs> well, but in a way, what you're saying, and this is now going beyond what you've said, but what can be inferred is that's the goal. And so all of this study and practice is worth it because that's the goal. But then you're saying, of course, I can't tell you what that is, so just kind of take it on faith. Not take it on faith, but trust in the process, yeah. That this process of trying to take suffering apart and learning what you're doing that creates suffering will get you to someplace really good. And it won't take you to a total annihilation. Because most of us live on the, on the assumption, and it's so subconscious that we don't even realize it, that I've always got to be doing something or else I'm just going to be nothing. And there's a big fear there. And Basically, the news of the Buddha's teachings was like, don't be afraid of this. But follow this process through. I don't know how far you want to pursue this, but it sounds like there are two different things going on here. One is saying, this is the path that I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. And, and here's the second point, you end up someplace good. And those seem to be two things. Mm -hmm. You could simply say, this is the path of ending suffering, period, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. If you said that, there would be the question, okay, is, you know, am I going to be annihilated at the end of suffering? Maybe I'd rather suffer than be annihilated. Well, the way a lot of people talk about Nirvana yeah, sounds is like... to try to avoid rebirth. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a lot of people would say, well, you know, if you get a good rebirth, why would mm -hmm. you want to avoid a good rebirth? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's because he said there's something better than getting reborn. I'll let you have the last word. <laughs> okay. Constructing a self. Monks, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. Okay. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Okay, the burden of the five clinging aggregates. We've been over those. 
the carrier of the burden is the person. And I was ah, the Buddha finally defines what a person is. And he says, this venerable one with such a name, such a clan name. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's as much as he will define a person for you. In other words, a common sense level. And he's not going to take it beyond there. The taking up of the burden is the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there. In other words, this is, this is the cause of suffering. Craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Actually, that should be craving for sensuality. Let's change that one here. Now, there's a question, and this is another place, Nancy, where you're going to be surprised, is that the Buddha never defines non-becoming in the canon. <laughs> Because people would say, well, hey, craving for non-becoming, craving for nirvana sounds like a craving for non-becoming, right? Hmm? What's wrong with that? And the closest you can get that I've seen a good explanation is either craving for non-becoming is the craving to be annihilated. You know, whatever you are, you want it to be annihilated. Or the craving that what you've got doesn't change. Because after all, becoming is a process of change. Craving for non-becoming would then be that You've got something really good, you don't want it to change. Think back to Palo Alto in 1999, the year 2000. The value of all those dot-com stocks. <laughs> the craving that they not fall, that would be craving for non-becoming. <laughs> but these are different there's, are explanations that come from later stratas of the text. The Pali itself never de defines non-becoming. It's strange. Okay, the casting off of the burden would be the end of suffering. Remainderless fading and cessation. The word fading there can also mean dispassion, having dispassion for craving. We've just turned on to page 10. Yeah. Cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. That's the casting off of the burden. So we create a self by clinging to the khandhas and identifying with them. Earlier this morning we went through the four types of clinging, which is the next discussion. And this is how we create a self. Next passage. There was the case where an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person who has no regard for noble ones, is not well-versed or disciplined in their dharma, who has no regard for people of integrity, not well-versed or disciplined in their dharma, assumes form to be the self. In other words, the form itself is the self, or the self as possessing form. In other words, you say, I don't say that form is myself, but I have a self that owns this form. Okay. Or you have the sense of form as in the self, as a much larger sense of self. And this could be anything from just you know, large enough to fill the room to large enough to fill the universe. You know, just this big, big self in which this particular form happens to appear. Or the self as in the form. You've got this little, what was the old philosophical term, homunculus or something? The little man inside the, inside the body. That's another way of conceiving the self. So I saying all four of these would count as ways of turning this particular khanda into a, into a sense of self.
or creating a sense of self around that particular conduct. And then he goes on and says the same about the different one, the four other ones. Okay, as you see, as you're obsessed with the idea that I am form or form is mine. As you're obsessed with these ideas, the form changes and alters, and you fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. So this is why the idea of a self around any of these khandhas is setting, setting yourself up for, for suffering of some kind or another. Because once you've got something you really want to hold on to, and then it changes, and then, then you're going to suffer. And then he goes on to say the same about the others. I like the idea of this consciousness as being the self, or self as possession consciousness, or consciousness as in the self. You've got a self that's even bigger than your consciousness. Or a self as in consciousness, the self is something smaller that's inside the consciousness. But when the consciousness that you're attached to here changes, then there's going to be sorrow, distress. So notice he's not saying here that you know, having a small sense of self identify with the khandhas is going to be, make you suffer, but if you have a bigger sense of self, you're going to be okay. Even the cosmic self is setting yourself up for suffering. In fact, you have more to suffer about if you start thinking about the world and <laughs> things that are going on there. This is part of me? I don't know. I don't like that idea. Any questions on that passage? If you don't, if you just don't do anything, then you keep up with your old habits, and things will just sort of drift along the way they are. I mean, somebody commits suicide, even, and they, well, they're just going to end up this part of the mind that still has craving is still going to latch onto something. So the next question is: Well, since we have this ability to do things, let's put it to a good use rather than to the creation of suffering. It's up to you. Do you want to keep on suffering? <laughs> well, no. But if I think that I'm doing good, mm -hmm. then I'm, isn't that just a... You're creating a better self. It's, the teachings have, have their... Have, it's kind of like a course of training. And certain ideas are useful at certain levels and not at other levels. And so the use, the idea that you want to get beyond good and evil, save that for pretty late, okay? <laughs> 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 it's, 
in the meantime, you say, I am suffering. And not only am I suffering, but the way I'm suffering is I'm thrashing around and causing other people to suffer as well. So either for their sake or for my sake, I'd like to put an end to this. That's good. And then the path he gives you, a path of practice to follow. And then you have this sense of self that wants to do good. That's much better than a sense of self that doesn't care. Okay? So you create this sense of self that wants to be more and more and more and more, and more skillful, putting it into suffering. That can take you quite a ways. In fact, they say even at the, there, you know, there are four levels of awakening. Even after the third level, there's still going to be some residual level of self. And it's only then that you totally demolish the sense of self. So save, save those teachings for later and say, really, in the meantime, I'm suffering, I'm causing other people to suffer. It's not necessary. Let's learn the skills that are needed to put an end to this. So that gives you your motivation. Because you can't just say, okay, I'm just going to stop and I'm not going to do anything anymore. Because you're just going to keep on doing. Well, because you still do something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the skill is learning how to do things that are more and more and more and more refined. Until you, the mind finally does tend to come to a point of equilibrium, equilibrium where it doesn't have to do anything. Then it's out. So, so you work in that direction. Okay. Notice also here, though, the role that ignorance plays in you. If you're uninstructed, uninstructed, and you have no regard for the noble ones and their dharma. Okay, if you do get instructed in their dharma, what are they going to teach you? The four noble truths, right? And then they're going to teach you a way out of this. So at the basis of all this is going to be ignorance. The ignorance that there's not a better way of doing things. Remember, the sense of self is something we create. We assume the sense of self. We create the sense of self. We add it on where it's not necessary. And so instead of the self being a thing that we have to let go of, it's an activity that we learn have to learn how not to do. Look on page 12, <clears throat> very top of the page. This goes to, the, again, more of the ways in which we define our sense of self. Either we define the self as possessed of form and finite, like that little homunculus I talked about, there's the little man inside of us, that's our self. Or when a self is possessed of form and infinite. In other words, a self that would be one with the universe. Or a sense that that is formless and finite. And this would cover probably the Christian notion of self. There's no form as a soul, the Christian soul. It has no form, but it is finite. Right? No? The soul is infinite? Infinite in all directions? Well, it's joined with God. Yeah, but until then, it's finite, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the self that is formless and infinite, that would be the, the soul that's joined with God, or the Brahman and Atman.
So again, it's not a case where it's just the, the self with a small s, that's a bad thing. But even our notions of self with a large s would also come under what the Buddha is talking about when we create this sense of self. Our sense of self is kind of like an amoeba. It just keeps changing its shape and moving around. And now you're identifying with this, and now we're, for, now we're tiny, and then we're infinite, back and forth, back and forth like this. But the point is that no matter what shape you create yourself in, or your sense of self, the things that you identify with, the things you have, that sense of me or mind surrounding, there's always going to be suffering. So that's what we're trying to get over. So, let's switch to page 14. There's a n the number of passages in here that we'll come back to later, if we have time. Okay. The topic of this section, beginning at the middle of page 14, is constructing the path. In other words, how to use the khandhas in, instead of creating a burden for yourself, you create the path to the end of suffering, to the end of the burden. To continue with the image we had earlier of the bricks you know, that you carry around as, as a burden on your shoulder, you take the bricks off your shoulder and you use them to pave a path for yourself so you can take off. Okay. So, so, we start out with right concentration here. I tell you, the ending of the metal fermentations, which are the clinging, remember the clinging factor in the clinging aggregates, aggregates depends on the first jhana, the second jhana, the third, and all the different jhanas up through the dimension of neither perception and non-perception. So he illustrates this with the first jhana. Okay. There's the case where monk, let's just say there's the case where you, withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enter and remain in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Okay, what have you got there? Rapture and pleasure, it's the aggregate of feeling. Directed thought and evaluation, that's sankara. Fabrication. Verbal fabrication, remember? Okay, you regard whatever phenomena there. Okay, the regarding here is attention. Again, that's part of name and form. It's under the aggregate of, of fabrication. Okay, whatever the khandas are there in the, in the jhana, and you actually have all five khandas, because there's the form of the body, so you're focused on the breath. So that's, that counts as the aggregate of form. There's the feeling of pleasure, there's the perception of pleasure that goes along with it, the fabrications that create this state, and the consciousness that's aware of it. Okay, you've got all five khandas there in that state of concentration. And then changing your attitude, the way you pay attention to them, you regard them not so much as pleasurable, but as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, a void, or emptiness, not self. You turn your mind away from those phenomena, and having done so, you incline your mind to the property of deathlessness. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. Okay, there's a lot there in that one paragraph. But it talks about sort of three, three levels in which you 
turn the khandhas into a path <clears throat> to the end of suffering. First is you create a nice state of concentration. Now this is important. Because without the concentration, one, it's hard, it's hard to see these things clearly. Once the mind is more concentrated, then it's easier, easier to focus on these things. Secondly, there's a state of well-being, which is very important for the arising of discernment. Because a lot of the discernment is going to be seeing how unskillful and stupid you are, or have been. And when you get a message like that, you want to be in a good mood. <laughs> No, this is this is important <laughs> because if you start thinking about not self like this, you know, constant stress with a disease, a cancer, an arrow. Ah, who wants that? You know, <laughs> who wants to even think in those terms, right? But if you're in a good mood, doesn't hurt you, doesn't threaten you. There's that sense of well-being. There's a sense of healthiness that comes with the state of concentration. So you need that to begin with. Then you can start thinking in these terms and say, well, maybe there's something better than even this. This is good, but then maybe there's something better. And so you take the khandhas, you turn them into a state of concentration, then you use the mode of analysis that we've had, using the five khandhas, in terms of form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness, and realize that these things that you've been identifying with are really not worth it holding on to. It's like realizing that you built yourself a house out of what you thought was rock, but it turns out it's frozen meat and it's going to start to disintegrate. <laughs> it's going to melt. And you want out. And that's when you turn your, the, third, the next stage is when you turn your mind away from those phenomena and you incline it to the deathless. Okay? This is something better. Okay? The resolution of all fabrications, okay? resolution or the stilling of all fabrications is another way of. And remembering how much a role fabrication plays in all the khandhas. If you didn't have that element of fabrication, you wouldn't experience it. When you say, how about just not making anything out of this stuff, okay? The relinquishment of all acquisitions, all the stuff that the baggage you've been carrying around. The word acquisition here is in Pali word is upati, U-P-A-D-H-I. And it means basically baggage, the baggage you carry around. Your sense of who you are, your sense of who you'd like to be. all your cravings and desires, you say, okay, enough, this is just baggage, I want to put it down. Okay, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. And the image here is a nice one. Suppose an archer or archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or a mound of clay, so that after a while he would become able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great masses. In other words, the first jhana there is your straw man or amount of clay. And, you, and you, you've got something to analyze, you've got something to play with, something to shoot. Because what happens is when you get into a state of concentration like that, it's really neat. And you say, I, I, you know, this is much nicer than things outside. I'm really much more attached here than I am to things outside. And wait for a while until so you're really attached and then take it apart. And we've all heard this thing, you know, watch out for states of concentration, because if you get into strong states of jhana, you get attached. And some people say, okay, well, I'll, I'll taste a little bit of jhana and then I'll have enough, okay? <laughs> Not too much, just one sip. And then you feel, and you say, okay, now I'm beyond that, I don't have to do that again. 
That's not what the Buddha is talking about. He's saying do it a lot over and over and over and over again till you really get attached and then start. It's like you've concentrated all your attachments in one spot. And then if you take, a, take those attachments apart, then you've, you know, you've untied an important knot. It's easier to, take care, to get rid of your attachments if they're concentrated in one place than if they're all over the place, the way we normally are. As I said earlier, our sense of self tends to be an amoeba. It stretches out here, it goes out there, it covers the whole, whole cosmos sometimes. And here the Buddha is basically saying, okay, get all your sense of self and concentrate it in this one really nice spot. Okay, let it fill the body, let it be really nice, so that all your attachments are right here. And then if you can take it apart right here, then you've cut, cut that habit, you've cut that um, tendency that you have. Okay, when after you've inclined the mind to the property of deathlessness, Okay, either, either you reach the ending of the fermentations, which were the element that made those clinging aggregates into clinging aggregates, or if not, if through passion and delight for this property of deathlessness. In other words, you have this, this taste of the deathless, but you also go back to your old habits of feeling passion and delight. But now it's passion. You have this sense that you're the person who is consuming or feeding off the property of deathlessness. That gets you to the state of awakening that's called non-returning. Five fetters have been cut away. Self-identity views, grasping at precepts and practices, uncertainty, sensual passion and irritation are all cut away. But the problem is, if there is that sense of passion and delight for the idea of deathlessness, or for the property of deathlessness, there are still five fetters that have not been cut away. Passion for form, say the form of the jhana, passion for formlessness, restlessness, conceit, the sense of there's still a sense of I that's in there. Because after all, where would that sense of passion and delight have any sort of home if there weren't that sense of I, a sense of me that goes along with it? And then ignorance, because okay, these are the things that haven't been totally cut away. <clears throat> While we're on the topic of non-returning uh, non here, or passion and delight for this property of deathlessness, you may have heard the passage where the Buddha says all fabrications are suffering or stressful, all fabrications are inconstant, and then all dhammas or all phenomena are not self. And it's usually taken to mean, well, all dhammas, that includes nirvana as well. But when the Buddha says that this, these teachings are the path, what he's saying here is to all dharmas are not self. You, you have a taste of the deathlessness, but there is a sense of identifying with it as a particular dharma, a particular object of the mind. That's another meaning for the word dharma. And so you have to realize that that too is not self, or else you're going to get stuck at non-returning. Now, I'm not saying that non-returning is a bad thing, okay? It's better than where we are right now. But when you ever hit that, remember, okay, don't identify with that either or else you get stuck. This, Nancy, I think is why the Buddha would say, don't have all those concepts about the, the deathless when you hit it, because you're going to get stuck there. There's one more level to go. No, no, no. 
if you get into the state of jhana and then you start looking at it from that point of view where he says you're seeing it as a cancer, an alien, a void, you know, that's done. And then, you keep, and then you incline your mind to the deathless. So you realize okay, what I'm doing here in the first jhana, this is still an activity, it's a very subtle activity. And if you really stick with that consistently enough, you finally get either to non-returning or to our hardship. Doing the jhana often enough and then analyzing it, the negative side of the jhana, inclining your mind to the deathless. And if you get skilled enough at that, and if you've been shooting enough arrows at this, so you finally pierce the great mass, okay, then, then we can start talking about awakening. But it's a sign that you don't have to go through all the jhanas in order to do this. Just get really good at one. And that's enough. Yes? Okay. Direct a thought and evaluation. And then it's accompanied by rapture and pleasure. And it has to be focused on one topic. And they describe it in the canon with an <clears throat> image that I think works very well with breath meditation. They say when you, you get the mind centered, like we were doing this morning, and then spread it to fill the whole body. Now, if there's a sense of ease and fullness that goes along with that, and then you allow the ease and the fullness to spread, through, spread throughout the whole body, kind of working through whatever tension you've got until you've got this whole body awareness. And it feels really good. That's the first jhana. And the image they use is they, they say a, a, a person, back in those days, they didn't have soap. They would take a ball of bath powder and they would add water to it in order to make a kind of soap. And they would, just the way we'd make um, bread out of, we'd make dough, we'd take the flour and we mix it with the water to the point okay, where there's the entire ball of flour has been saturated with the water, but it doesn't drip out. That's the image they use. You kind of need the water through. You need the sense of pleasure through the body. Sort of breathe through the body in ways to release the tension until you've got the body sort of work through in that way. That's the first jhana. Yeah. Um, I have a, a question about the word evaluation. You know, I've mm -hmm. heard of that as like sustained thought or sustained mm -hmm. attention. Mm -hmm. I don't quite understand evaluation without like doing too much thinking. Well, how much thinking is involved in this? Does this feel good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does this feel good? Not yet. I mean, that's, that's the extent of thinking we're doing, okay? <laughs> it's not all that analytical. So does this feel good? Oh, I'd like it better. This, 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 we'll do that. Then you know. That's the kind of thinking you get involved in. When you get to the point where it's as good as you can get it, then you stop even that thinking. But it's extremely sort of... What's a good word? It doesn't require a lot of articulation. It doesn't require a lot of analysis. But just that, you know, keep following, does it feel good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, steep with, yeah, 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 it feels good. Good, 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 good. That kind of evaluation. Yes? I think you just said something very radical in there, which is you only have to do one of the jhanas and do it really well. The only person I've known who taught the jhanas since I came, mm -hmm. who was very clear that you had to do all, mm -hmm. is this an unusual teaching that you only have to do one of the jhanas? It's right there in the canon. Right here, this passage. I tell you, the ending of parental fermentations depends on the first jhana. And the second jhana, the third jhana, I mean, what's, what's missing there? 
the way it was written in full would be, I tell you, the ending of mental fermentations depends on the first jhana. I tell you, the ending of mental fermentations depends on the second jhana. I tell you, the ending of mental fermentations depends on the third jhana. And then he, then he gives you an example. Then it's the example. He says, okay, I tell you, the ending of mental fermentations depends on the first jhana. Thus it was said. In reference to what was it said? There's a case where a monk okay, enters the first jhana, regards it as you know, a cancer, an alien, a void, inclines his mind to the deathless, becomes an arahant. End of discussion for the first jhana. Then he goes on to the second jhana. Same discussion. So it doesn't have to be all the jhanas. It could just be any one of them. Is this an unusual interpretation? There are several passages in the canon that are like this. Yes? Is the A-N the end? Did I just get it? I thought it was the question. A-N, Anguttara Nikaya, yes. Which will be volume three in the upcoming series of Handful of Leaves. Volume two was supposed to be ready today, but the truckers couldn't get it in today, so it's going to come in next week. So if you stop by next week, there will be copies of volume two. The indexer is working on volume three. So, yes? Um, two kind of related questions. Um, could you clarify this, you know, this, this uh, seeing the unsatisfactoriness and, and moving on? Is that what you do to get into the second genre, or is that the Vipassana that follows after you exit the first genre? And then secondly, um, here we talk about the eight, you know, the uh, ending of mental fermentations goes all the way up to the eighth jhana. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, then the eightfold path to talk about great concentrations. Just the four jhanas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I probably think about this later, so I might as well ask you now. Okay. So, um, as for the first question, um, they talk about a, a state. A couple of passages in the canon talk about a state where you've, okay, you've been fully immersed in your jhana, okay, and then you pull out a little bit, and they say it's like a person, this person sitting up watching a person sitting down, lying down, or a person standing watching the person sitting. They're just up above a little bit above that state that they were previously. You can analyze the state there. So it's not the same as being fully in the jhana, because when you're fully in the jhana, you can't analyze it. But it's not the same as being totally out. You're sort of halfway. You've pulled out a little bit. And it's from that state that you can, you can do the analysis. Now, sometimes when you do that analysis and you sort of overcome whatever stress, or stress there was in the first jhana, it will take you into the second jhana. It's not the Vipassana proper. It's just kind of the Question, what do you mean by Vipassana proper? I'm just trying to figure out why yeah. some people say, well, it's just Vipassana, and some people say, well, it's jhanas. Mm -hmm. the, canon, the canon doesn't make that distinction. I know. Some yeah. teachers do. Yeah. Um, in the canon, they say Vipassana and what they call Samatha are two qualities you want to develop. First, so that you can actually get into the jhana. Because you need a certain amount of clear seeing in order to see, okay, there's, you know, there's this unskillful mental state, I want to drop that. There's this nice sensation here, I want to maximize that. So there's an element of clear seeing right there. And there's the element of samatha, which is the tranquility, just sort of getting the mind established in one thing. You need those two, those, those two mental qualities in order to get the mind to settle down into a state of jhana to begin with. Once you've got the mind settled down, of course, then the more settled down it is, the clearer you can see. 
And so there's kind of it, the jhana depends on the vipassana, and the vipassana depends on the jhana. Well, they, remember, it's the vipassana and samatha are the two the two oxes pulling the plow. They get you to first the jhana, okay? And then based on the jhana, they you know they can take you further. And you know some people tend to be you know one ox is going to be stronger than the other. But what you want to do is you want to get the two of them working together. Which in the case of all the jhanas up through what. Dimension of nothingness. You can actually have that that element of when you pull out of it slightly, you can do the analysis of what's going on. And while you're doing that analysis in the jhana, okay, you can gain awakening. Or it's when you've pulled out, but you're still sort of freshly out, and you see clearly as this comes into the mind and that comes into the mind. There's this activity. You can see the activity of the mind, and you say, "Wait a minute, this is creating suffering. I don't want to do this." And you drop it. So that's how they're related. As for the, why the Eightfold Noble Path has all four jhanas, I don't know. But, I mean, if you can do them, fine. Great. Number four is a really cool one, because you stop breathing. <laughs> okay. okay. Yes? You have to ask yourself the right questions and have a certain amount of rigor in how you accept the answers. And the purpose of this is to help you ask the right questions. Now, the rigor that you bring to you know, coming to the answers is something that each person has to apply, him or herself. Now, the Zen teaching is based on the assumption that everybody's got you know, awakened nature anyhow. And if you allow it to come forth, give it enough time, It'll come forth. Um, the Theravada tradition says, "Well, our nature is going to kind of unformed anyhow, so let's do a little forming in the right direction." So it's coming from a different assumption. My experience is, you get people meditating very seriously for long periods of time; they can go absolutely crazy, you know. Which is why people need some some amount of guidance. And even in zazen, where they don't give you, you know, clearly articulated descriptions, you know, you have to go in for dokusan every now and then. And if you've got a good teacher, he can see, oh, this guy's way off the mark. And they'll try to direct you in another direction. So, but there's one passage where the Buddha says the two most important things are, on the external level, is having a good friend, someone who knows the path and can see when you're, when you're on the path and when you're off the path and give you the proper, distraction, the proper distractions. Yeah, proper distractions. Proper distractions. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're going off the path, you need to be distracted sometimes. Um, the, be- the most important internal quality is appropriate attention, which is this ability to look at things in the right way and ask the right questions. Now, to get that ability sometimes requires external training so that you know what's a good question and what's not. But I'd, I'd say you need, you need a certain amount of understanding. I've heard of you know, Zen people complaining. I've been sitting all these years and all the stuff that I've been working so hard to try to figure out. It's written here on one or two pages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I've seen people practice. You know, they've, they've studied all this stuff and practiced very earnestly. But without a good teacher, they can go off the, off the mark as well. So it's a combination of factors that's required. One more, one more passage and then we'll stop for break. Page 15, the Karyamanada Sutta. Remember we said there are basically three stages in this practice of creating the path. One is to take the khanda, create it into a nice state of concentration. Take all five khandas, put them in a nice state of concentration. The second one is to see their drawbacks. And then the third is to incline your mind to the deathless. Okay, so okay, enough of this stuff. I, I, want, I want something better. I want something out of here. Now, the Kirimandana Sutta here lists all of these as different forms of sanya, different forms of perception. And the order is, is a little bit different this time around. First, they, they start with the, looking at the negative side of the different khandas. There's the perception of inconstancy, perception of not-self, perception of unattractiveness. Gil, what was your translation for that? Unattractiveness, asupat? Unappetizing. Unappetizing. You just wouldn't want to eat this, would you? (laughs) Perception of unattractiveness. It's a case where you ponder this very body, from the soles of the feet on up, from the crown of the head on down, surrounded by skin, filled with all sorts of unclean things. Unclean not in the sense of spiritually unclean, but simply if you had them lying around the house, they'd be dirty. Okay? You came into your living room and found a pile of this stuff on your floor. You'd want to clean it out very fast. Okay? There is hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, muscle, tendons, bones, bone marrow, spleen, heart, liver, membranes, kidneys, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, gorge, feces, gall, phlegm, lymph, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oil, saliva, mucus, oil in the joints, and urine. Okay? Now, some people say this is taking a very negative view of the body. I think we've talked about this before, the healthy negative view and the, and the unhealthy negative view. An unhealthy negative view is when you say, I have an ugly body, all those people out there have beautiful bodies, there's something wrong with me. Okay? A healthy negative view says, we're all in the same boat. Look at what we've got. Every one of us in this room, unless you've had a gallbladder operation, has all of these things. <laughs> so, so if, even if you create a really nice body, this is what you create it out of. Okay? And the question is, would I want to identify with that? Well, no. Perception of drawbacks. 
There's a case, we're going to the wilderness, the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, reflect this. This body has many pains, many drawbacks. In this body, many kinds of disease arise, such as seeing diseases, hearing diseases, nose diseases, tongue diseases, body diseases, head, ear, mouth, teeth, cough, asthma, catarrh, fever, aging, stomach ache, fainting, dysentery, grip, cholera, leprosy, boils, ringworm. It goes on and on and on here. You know? And that's not even a complete list. Look at the last two diseases, defecation and urination. <laughs> so, the drawbacks of having a body. Then you realize it's not just the, the body that's the problem, there's the mind. There's a perception of abandoning. You don't tolerate an arisen thought of sensuality. You abandon it, destroy it, dispel it, wipe it out of existence. Because you realize it's the mind that's the real problem here and not the body. You don't tolerate an arisen thought of ill will. You abandon it, destroy it, dispel it, wipe it out of existence. You don't tolerate an arisen thought of harmfulness. You abandon it, destroy it, dispel it, wipe it out of existence. Okay, you don't tolerate evil, any arisen evil, unskillful mental qualities. You abandon them, destroy them, dispel them, wipe them out of existence. This is called the perception of abandoning. Evil, yeah. Remember, well, we all have evil in each of us. If we're going to wipe out evil, where are you going to draw the battle lines? But that's what's Yeah. I mean, you say, those people out there are evil, we're good. Okay, you're creating a lot of problems. If you recognize, okay, we've all got evil within us, you can't go out and kill evil. You have to kill yourself. But remember, it's these qualities where all that comes from. I remember hearing talking about someone you know, saying, you know, embrace the evil in the world or embrace the violence in the world. And it makes sense only if you say, okay, admit that you've got it in yourself and then that you're going to do something about it. If you're going to do anything about it, you've got to start right here. And this is not downplaying the fact that, yes, you know, we don't like to think of it, but we do have some evil qualities in us. Yes? Also, it's to help get you there. And we talk about you know, the first jhana as transcending evil. Well, how do you get to the first jhana without transcending the evil? I mean, it's, it's, it's the way there. If you've got, you know, if you've got something really harmful thoughts in your mind, you're not going to get into the first jhana until you've done something about those thoughts. And sometimes just doing something about it simply means of turning your mind away. I'm going to focus on the breath even more strongly. But at least you've turned your mind away from them. To get there. Something like maybe lust would be there, and it's like, okay, lust, what is that meant? Oh, okay, and then it's sort of expansive state, and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. But it means, that means, as you said, you know, recognizing the state and realizing I don't want to go there. But it happens like 
That's because you developed good habits. You've developed good habits. Well, for that period of time. <laughs> for that moment, you've got a good habit. And what you want to do is strengthen those habits. Any other questions on the perception of abandoning? Okay. Okay, those are the negative ones. The, the ones that tend you toward the mind, toward the deathless. The perception of cessation. Oh, excuse me. It's six and seven are the ones that tend you toward the deathless. The only distinction is that they take the dispassion out of one and they replace it with cessation in the other. So it's your choice. That's the only distinction, yeah. But again, it's, it's the identical contemplation that we had earlier where the, the monk has been you know, shooting the arrows at his first state of jhana and then inclines his mind to the deathless. So this is peace, this is exquisite, the stilling of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions. The ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, and binding. And binding. And if those two contemplations are not enough, you've got eight and nine, which go back to the drawbacks, the perception of distaste for every world. Suppose you get stuck. Remember, they talked about inclining your mind to the deathless, and then get stuck on non-returning. These next two contemplations are to remind you, well, let's go a little bit further than that. Any world that you could get into, even the formless worlds. There's a case where a monk abandoning any attachments, clings, fixations of awareness, biases, or obsessions with regard to any world, refrains from them and does not get involved. And here we're not only talking about external worlds, but also worlds within the mind. Those states of being, the formless states of being that you can get into. Saying even this. It's nothing I would want to get involved with. The undesirability of all fabrications, even the most subtle kind of fabrications, just you feel horrified, humiliated, and disgusted with them. Again, that's trying to focus in on the negative side of those, the, the, the processes of the, the khandas here. And the next one requires a fair amount of explanation, but everybody's getting restless, so let's break. On page 17, the tenth perception. It's perception of mindfulness and in and out breathing. <clears throat> and here the Buddha gives his basic breath meditation instructions in the form of a perception or a type of perception using the perception, the, the aggregate of perception in order to create concentration, in order to give rise to discernment and insight. Okay. A couple years back, there was a controversy in Thailand over how to translate the word perception. Because the Thais themselves use the word jam, which if you open up a basic Thai English dictionary, will say to remember. And so the question was, well, shouldn't the word sanya be translated as memory? In fact, there was quite a bit of controversy around it. And the controversy got to a John Sawat. And one day he said, you know, why is it that in the ten perceptions here in the Karyamandita Sutta, which is a very famous sutta in Thailand, why is it he lists breath meditation as a perception? 
And the commentary said, well, when your the word perception applies not only to memories of the past, but also to what's happening in the present right now, right? He said, yeah. And so from that point on, if anyone in Thailand attacks me for translating sanya as perception, I've got a John Sawat on my side. <laughs> so this is using the, the aggregate of perception in order to create concentration. First, bring you, bring in long, breathing in long, you discern that you're breathing in long. Breathing out long, you discern that you're breathing out long. Okay, what is that if not a perception? Long. You, you put the label on the long breath as a long breath. Secondly, with a short breath. Second step, short breath. Third step, you train yourself. And this applies to the remaining steps. The first two steps are simply observing. From this point on, you're training yourself. There's an element of will that goes into developing these remaining steps. First, you will yourself to breathe in sensitive to the entire body and to breathe out sensitive to the entire body. Okay, here your perception is whole body. There's just that label in your awareness in addition to the breath. Third, you train yourself to calm the bodily processes. Bodily processes here is, should have been bodily fabrication. I don't know why I left it untrans unchanged here. Which, of course, is the breath. So your perception here is calming, calming, calming. That's the first tetrad, which when you relate these 16 steps of breath meditation to the four foundations of mindfulness, this relates to body. The body in and of itself. Okay. Next tetrad, step five. You train yourself to breathe in sensitive to rapture and to breathe out sensitive to rapture. Notice you don't leave the breath. You stay with the breath and have the rapture there with it. Some people think that in order to have feeling as your foundation of mindfulness or as your frame of reference here, you drop the breath and hold on to the feeling. But there's a passage in the canon where he says, you know, that this continual awareness with continual attention to the breath is a type of feeling. And so you stay with the breath throughout all of these steps. Sensitive to rapture, you breathe out sensitive to rapture. You breathe in sensitive to pleasure, breathe out sensitive to pleasure. And again, you have that that perception, that mental label in mind. You breathe in sensitive to mental processes, and again, that should be mental fabrications, which in this case, again, would be feeling and perception. And you breathe out sensitive to feeling and perception. You breathe in and out in step eight, calming feelings and perceptions. Okay, that completes the second tetrad. Third tetrad. You train yourself to breathe in sensitive to the mind and to breathe out sensitive to the mind. Now, there are other passages that give the sense that this is the state of mind when you reach the fourth jhana. You, there's an awareness that fills the whole body. All your perceptions and feelings have been calm, but there's an awareness that fills the whole body. The analogy they have is if a person sitting covered with a white cloth from head to toe, you've got this bright awareness that fills the whole body. And that's the mind that you're sensitive to, because the metal, metal fabrications have been stilled. The next three are steps in learning how to maintain that balance or maintain that equilibrium of mind. 
you breathe in, satisfying the mind. You train yourself to breathe out, satisfying the mind. In other words, if you, if you find that the mind is getting bored with this, okay, you find a way to breathe, or find a way to, to focus, that gets you, gives you a greater sense of satisfaction. In other words, if things are getting dry, you try to make it moist again. You breathe in, steadying the mind, breathe out, steadying the mind. If the mind starts to wobble, you find ways of making it steady again. To breathe in, releasing the mind, to breathe out, releasing the mind. This is not release in the ultimate sense. It's basically releasing the mind from lower states that would, say, mar the concentration. In other words, if you're in the first jhana and there's sensual thoughts that come up, you release the mind from those sensual thoughts. Just let them go. If you're in the second jhana and thoughts of directed thought of evaluation arise again, you release the mind from those. In other words, whatever would pull you back down to a lower state of concentration, you learn to release your mind from that and bring it back up again. Okay. Now this is important, one, in just developing concentration as a good steady place to stay. Learning about the processes of cause and effect to keep it there, but also realizing that this nice state of concentration you've got going here is something that requires constant care and attention. You haven't reached the deathless, okay? It's, it still needs caring. You've still got to work at this, you've got to work at that, you've got to steady it a little bit here, release it a little bit there, satisfy it here in order to keep it going. And so in the process of doing this, it's not just noticing changes in the jhana, but also noticing that the jhana itself is inherently inconstant. That takes you to the fourth tetrad, step number 13. Years back, when Larry Rosenberg was writing his book, Breath by Breath, I'd get phone calls saying, let's talk about 13 here a little bit. <laughs> and he meant step 13 in the breath meditation. <laughs> and I'd have to think for a few minutes, which step is step 13? I hadn't had them clearly in mind. So you focus in that question, that the inconstancy of, in this case, the jhana state that you've got going. Remember that passage we had earlier, you're in the state of jhana, and then you start looking at it in terms of being inconstant, stressful, not self Cancer, void, an alien, whatever. This is that contemplation. Because the inconstancy here involves stressfulness, it involves the fact that it's not self. If something was inconstant, how could it be yourself? How could it be anything you would want to identify with? I'd like to stop and contemplate that particular question for a minute. Many people say they have no problem with the idea that something that's inconstant or stressful could be their self. The idea being that if they didn't identify with that, they wouldn't have anything to identify with. So identifying, say, with a body, that's okay, I know my body's going to die, but it's me for the time being. So why do you say that it's just the fact that it's inconstant or stressful? How is that proof that it's not self? Well, don't read it as proof. Read it in the context of the Buddha's teachings on discernment. We think of discernment as being you know, three characteristics. But we have to remember that when the Buddha talked about discernment, he defined it in general terms as the ability to ask questions, the right questions. And the, the question that begins discernment is the question, he said, you go to someone who's wise, and then you ask them, what, when I do it, will be to my long-term well-being and happiness? That's the basic question you're looking for in terms of, of discernment. On the one hand, it realizes that what you do is important. Things don't just float by, that there isn't, you have an active role in providing for your happiness. 
And then the qualifications for what would qualify as the kind of happiness that you would like to work towards are my long-term welfare and happiness. Now look at those three words, my long-term welfare and happiness. Okay. Long-term, if something is inconstant, it's not long-term, right? Okay. Welfare and happiness, if it's stressful, it's not, it's not welfare and happiness. And if it's not long-term and it's not welfare and happiness, why would you want it to be mine? So they've got the three characteristics. The logic of the three characteristics comes from that question. In other words, if it's in constant, it's not what you want. You want to look for something better. And so you keep working in that direction. So taken in the abstract, the three characteristics are not proof of any kind. But when you look at them in terms of you know, what you're your goal in action is, because after all, when we act, it's an effort involved. We want our efforts to be paid back, right? Repaid. And if it's just going to be, it's going to be intense happiness, it's going to be short term, and it's going to turn into something else, you say, I don't know if I want that. Is that really what I want to do? Because happiness is something that you work towards, that's something that requires an effort, you want something that you know, repays the effort, in which case you would and so if something is inconstant and stressful, you say, I don't want it. I don't want it to be me or mine. I want something better than this. That's the logic of the three characteristics. Okay, once you've got that insight down, then the next step follows. You breathe in and out, focusing on dispassion. And the word focusing here is worth explaining. It's, it's anupasana in Pali, which means that you keep watching it, you keep track of it. So here the dispassion comes, and it's not that you identify with the dispassion, just watch the process and see where that process goes. Stick with it and watch it consistently. The next step, you breathe in and out, focusing on cessation. Remember, wherever there's dispassion or fading, there's going to be cessation. So that's the next step, and you watch that. Here we've moved from the mind's focusing on the negative aspect of the khandas and moving, it's being inclined more to the deathless. You know, you, you incline the mind towards cessation, you incline it more towards dispassion. And then finally, with step number 16, you breathe yourself to tra train yourself to breathe in and out, focusing on relinquishment, just sort of giving everything back, which in this case would include the path of practice that you've been working on, all the insights that you gathered. You stop, you stop fabricating even that much. And it's for in, relinquishing all fabrications altogether. These four steps in the last tetrad are related to the four noble truths. Inconstancy relates to the first noble truth. Dispassion, in the second one, you're, you're focusing on dispassion for the craving. Cessation, of course, would relate to the cessation of suffering. And relinquishing, because the last thing you relinquish is the path. That's related to the Fourth Noble Truth. Now all this comes under the category of perception, aggregate of perception. One way of using perceptions, instead of creating suffering for yourself, learning how to use your perceptions of the breathing process and then the mental states that surround the breathing process, to take the mind to awakening. So this is another example of how you use the, the aggregates. Instead of making them a burden, you make them your path.
You're focusing on the aggregate of perception. Are there any questions? Yes. In terms of understanding all of those steps, is the implication that you master one and go into the next, and is it some sort of description for an order? There is an order in the sense up from one through nine. There's a step-by-step order. And then 13 through 16 is step-by-step. The other three, 10, 11, and 12, depend on, the, depend on the circumstances of the mind. If the mind needs steadying, you steady it. If it doesn't need steadying, you don't bother with it. But the implication is that this is a step-by-step process. Yes? What's rapture? Rapture, at the Pali word is bitti, and it uh, can also be translated as refreshment, a sense of sort of drinking in a very nice, full feeling. In Thai, they translate it as a sense of fullness. The, the commentaries describe rapture in, in various ways. It can be a sense of just a sense of fullness or ease in the body. Um, sometimes you get chills running up and down your spine, your hair stands on end. Um, some, in extreme cases, some people find themselves moving you know, involuntarily. Um, other times it can be a distorted sense of your body, like your body feels very large, like it's filling the whole room, or very small, like it's very tiny, or your head may be large and encompasses your whole body, or your body may be without a head or something. There are all kinds of ways that your sense of the body gets distorted. And then pleasure is just... A sense of ease. There's a, a passage, I think it's one of the commentaries, they, com- they compare rapture to a person coming across a desert and being very hot and thirsty and tired, and finally coming up to an oasis. And the, the sense of the, the, you know, when you drink that first sip of water going into your body, that's rapture. And then after you've had that, okay, then you continue drinking the water, and then it's just pleasure. That's one, one analogy. But I've seen people have, you know, long, you know, states of rapture that go on for long periods of time. And it's, it's this kind of, it's half metal, half physical kind of feeling. There's a, a feeling of real fullness, both physical and mental, that goes along with it. I, for me, the most strange feeling of rapture I had was after my teacher passed away. Um, he'd gone to Hong Kong to teach, had a heart attack, and they, they were going to bring the body back. But before they could bring the body back, there was a lot of bureaucratic rigmarole. So it took several days to get the body back. In the meantime, they had decided to keep the body in a monastery near Bangkok where his students could come and go easily. And I had his personal belongings. I had his bowl, I had his ceremonial fan and these other things. We need that at the funeral, so you bring it out from the monastery, which is where I was. So on the way to the monastery, I stopped off at another monastery in central Bangkok. And there's a group of Ajahn Fuang students who were sitting around. They had a little picture book that they'd put together, pictures of when he was alive. And they were sitting there crying. And something in Mutton Sami said, why are you crying? I mean, he's, he's gone to a good place. <laughs> he's gone well. Um, and all of a sudden, this feeling of rapture came up in me, and I couldn't explain it. Even the body came back. I was looking at the body. It was, it was kind of like I was insulated through that whole two-day period. So I can come at strange times. But you also find that, by the way, you can, you can induce it by the way you breathe. 
if you know that there are certain spots that you focus on, certain ways that you breathe that kind of trigger it, and you can get it once you get really familiar with it. But the basic, the basic definition is a sense of refreshment, a sense of fullness. Yes? Is that what you were talking about, moistening it? Yes. Mm. Uh, John Fuang used to talk about rapture as being the, the lubricant in your meditation. If you're sitting there noting, 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 it's getting kind of dry, well, breathe in, so it feels really good for a while. And that helps to lubricate it. Yes? No, there's something else entirely. Visions. Visions. Do you have any more questions about visions? Well, what are they It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but it's an important one. Um, the commentaries talk about three stages of concentration. There's what they call momentary concentration, which is our normal everyday level of concentration. You focus on something till you lose interest, and then you drop it, and you focus on something else. The next stage is called neighborhood or access concentration, where the mind has pretty much dropped its ordinary, everyday bearings and is getting into, say, the breath or getting into whatever the object is. But you're not fully implanted or fully solid in it. It's kind of an intermediate drifting stage. And it's during this stage that visions can happen. It's also during the stage where people tend to float, you know, their attention tends to float away. And it's because you're, you're kind of your, your guard is down a little bit, and you're not fully implanted in the third stage of meditation, which is fixed penetration. And in that stage, there's no visions coming in. Fixed, they call it fixed penetration, up and down. But it's in this intermediate stage that the visions come. And sometimes they're true, and sometimes they're false. <laughs> Anything else on the 16 steps? Are we worn out? <laughs> okay. So, deconstruction. This is the process we've, we've talked about a little bit so far, where you start note, focusing on the negative side of the aggregates. is why would you want to focus on the negative side of the aggregates? It's because when you don't identify with them, then there's no pain, distress, or despair. So what you're trying to do is to put yourself as this... Can you clean that out of the tape? <laughs> okay. How is one afflicted in body but unafflicted in mind? This is a teaching for an old man who was walking in, wobbling on his stick, complaining about the fact that he was an old man and he was sick all the time. And so Sarabhuta teaches him, how does one unafflicted in mind, even if you're afflicted in the body? There's a case where you have regard for the noble ones, you're well-versed and disciplined in their dharma, and you don't assume form to be yourself or yourself as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self as in form. You're not obsessed with the idea that I am form or form is mine. And as you're not obsessed with these ideas, your form may change and alter, but you don't fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair over its change or alteration. Okay. This is the skill you need when you're going to be sick, right? You sit here, I'm sick, I could die. You say, but hey, it's just form. Try thinking in those terms. 
It's not me, it's not myself. I'm not in it, it's not in me. And if you've trained yourself to be able to think in those terms, then when the body actually does get sick and starts doing things you didn't tell it to do, or don't want it to do, still you're not going to have any sorrow, lamentation, or pain, distress, or despair over those changes, seeing it simply as form, and so on with the other aggregates. The next passage is a little drastic. It's just as when boys or girls are playing with little sandcastles, or in India they would play with little dirt houses, but I thought sandcastles would work better here in the West. As long as they're not free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, and craving for those little sandcastles, that's how long they have fun with those sandcastles, enjoy them, treasure them, feel possessive of them. But when they become free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, and craving for those little sandcastles, then they smash them, scatter them, demolish them with their hands or feet, and make them unfit for playing. Okay. In the same way, you too should smash, scatter, and demolish form and make it unfit for play. Now, this doesn't mean go up and tear up your body, okay? What it means is that you analyze it until you realize that it's nothing you want to play around with anymore. Like focusing on its unattractive side, focusing on the diseases that it makes you subject to, focusing on it in any way that makes you lose your craving for it. Practice for the ending of craving for form. And the same goes on with feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. And then the Buddha ends, says, because the ending of craving is unbinding, or nirvana. This gets to the point you made earlier. I've forgotten your name now. The negative, looking at the negative side being a little bit, seeming a little bit excessive. I wouldn't say practice aversion for it, but practice it in such a way that you, you just don't want to get involved in it. And again, instead of thinking of thoughts as things that you feel aversion for, thinking of, thinking of as activities that you're unskillfully involved in. Let's say you have an addiction to, to gambling. Think of it that way. Again, seeing that you're constantly paying attention to the, the six senses. And where are you going to focus to get out of that? Well, you focus in on, on your object of concentration. I mean, and then, during, and when you're sitting, I can see that, but how about the rest of the time? Okay, well, the Buddha talks about consciousness as you know, just the suffering that follows on that, the feeling that has to follow from consciousness the thoughts constructs that follow from consciousness. So again, the consciousness itself is not good or bad, but it's, it's opening you up to these other things that are going to create suffering, to cling to it. So, and what happens when you... Where do you go when you don't want to cling to consciousness? Well, you, you go to really refined states of concentration. But the only way you're totally done with consciousness, I mean, there are two ways to be done with it. One is to go into a state of unconsciousness, which is not what you want. But you can, you can induce it in concentration practice. It can be done. But that it doesn't solve anything. The other is to focus. It, the, other, the other aggregates are easier to focus on. When you take apart your craving for any one particular aggregate, it kind of spreads to the others. 
if you take apart your craving for feeling, especially feeling of the body. Once those are taken apart and you realize the, the role that perception and fabrication and consciousness play in that, kind of your lack of craving for the whole mass goes. So this is why most meditation, most meditation practices are focused on the body or on feelings or perceptions, those three are the big ones. Once you take apart your, your attachment to those, then the rest follows suit. You look back on where we go. Page four. Remember, I told you this was not organized. Okay, okay here's some practice in looking at the different aggregates. Monks suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down this Ganges River. And a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what, for what substance would there be in a glob of foam? In the same way, the, the monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form that is past, future, present, internal, or external, blatant, or subtle, common, or sublime, far or near. And as you see it, it would appear empty, void, and without substance. For what substance would there be in form? So think of your body as a glob of foam. <laughs> and just go around, you know, go around for a couple of days and look at the world, you know, all those bodies out there, they're globs of foam. And think about how people are worked up about their globs of foam. <laughs> They take their globs of foam down to the gym and work them out in order to get rid of the fat. <laughs> they put on all kinds of cosmetics to their globs of foam. And it's a useful exercise. It sort of helps dis develop a little bit of dispassion for these things. Feeling. Suppose that in the autumn, when it's raining in fat, heavy drops, a water bubble were to appear and disappear on the water. And a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a water bubble? Spend a day or two thinking of your feelings as water bubbles. They just kind of come up, pop, and then they're gone. And then you start thinking about all you do for the sake of feelings. I think this is an important important contemplation because you know it does take a lot of effort to keep these these aggregates going and then what do you get out of them a little bit of pleasure pop it's gone all that effort pop it's gone and then begin to wonder why should I continue getting involved in these processes third kanda now suppose that in the last month of the hot season a mirage was shimmering and a man with good eyesight were to see it observe it and appropriately examine it Okay. To him, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way you examine perceptions. I think these are very precise images they use here. You know, your perception of something is just that. It's just an image. It doesn't have the reality of the object that you perceive. It could be a metal image that you create, or the, the word that you apply to it, or your memory of it. In all those cases, it's a mirage. And then you think about going off for a vacation so that you can have the memories of that wonderful vacation. 
And then you come home, what do you have? You have Kodak pictures and you have mirages. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> okay. Now suppose that a man desiring heartwood and crest of heartwood were <clears throat> seeking heartwood to, were to go into a forest carrying a sharp axe. There he would see a large banana tree, straight, young, of enormous height. You all know banana trees, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Okay, he would having he would pull it at the root and having cut it at the root, chop off the top. Having chopped off the top, he would peel away the outer skin. Peeling away the outer skin, he wouldn't even find the sapwood to say nothing of heartwood. In other words, you just keep peeling away the, the outer skin, outer skin, outer skin, and there's nothing at all. There's no substance there. Okay, all these fabrications that we make that are so elaborate, like you know, a tree, but when you take it apart, there's no real substance there. And again, it's, remember, these are activities. We look for substance in processes and activities, and it's not there to be found. Suppose that a magician, a magician's apprentice, were to display a magic trick at a major intersection. A man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. And it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a magic trick? Consciousness is like a magic trick. It's there, and then it's gone. So, so these are ways of contemplating the aggregates. And again, it's not saying that they're horrible things, it's just there's no real substance there to them. And if you cling to them, if you make your... Your life revolve around these things, then you're clinging to something that's empty and void. Look on page 12. If one stays obsessed with form, that's what one is measured by. Whatever one is measured by, that's how one is classified. The word measured here also means limited. That's what you're limited by. Limited. The word measured. Okay, if you're going to be obsessed with forms and feelings and perceptions and fabrications, okay, you're measured by that, you're limited by that, and that's what you classify yourself by. In other words, it's your choice to classify yourself in terms of these things. It's not forced on you. You know that teaching we often hear that, well, the five khandhas are what a person really is. You choose to be the five khandhas. You choose to identify with the five khandhas. But this passage is saying if you do that, then you're limited by that, you're measured by that, and classified by that. You're placing limitations on yourself when you identify with things. And if you're not obsessed by them, if, you're not, if you don't identify with them, then you're not limited by them. That's the lesson of this passage. Again, this being that we think we are, this being, to what extent is one said to be a being? And it's not that you're born a being or anything, it's but any desire, passion, delight, or craving for form. When you're caught up there, tied up there, You're said to be a being. Okay, if you identify with these things, you're tied there. Again, there's a sense of if you identify with them, you're, you're, this is what you're limited by, this is what you're creating limitations on yourself that you don't need. 
This next interchange between Mara and Sister Vajra is a very famous one. Mara comes up, Sister Vajra is sitting and meditating in the forest, and that's an important part to remember. It's not that she's sitting around contemplating metaphysical truths, she's trying to meditate, okay? Mara comes up and says, Hey, by whom was this being created? Where is this being's maker? Where is the being originated? Where does the being cease? And for most of us, when we when we hear about you know, standard Theravada teachings, this, we think this is all about. It gets talking about the ending of a being. And Sister Vajra, being a good meditator, instead of getting caught up in those questions, she deconstructs the concepts. What? Do you assume a being, Mara? Do you take a position? This is purely a pile of fabrications. There's no being. Here, no being can be pinned down. In other words, if you start searching around in the aggregates, you can't really find a being that you would want to be. Just as when with the assemblage of parts there is the word chariot, even so when aggregates are present, there's the convention of a being. So she's deconstructing the concept of being. But remember, some people take this as saying, well, there is no such thing as a being. Take that in context with the passage that just came before that. Okay? If you want to tie yourself down, then you really are a being. But you don't want to tie yourself down. You don't have to be. And then you can look at this, and it's only stress that comes to be, only stress that remains and falls away. Nothing but stress comes to be. Nothing ceases but stress. Okay, when you look at experience in those terms, that develops dispassion. And by developing dispassion, then the mind is freed. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, um, about about being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's such a, a category that's the thought that's kind of baked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, us from the Greeks out, and we don't even baked realize, in. Baked. Yes. <laughs> yeah. we, we don't even realize that it's an assumption. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, and, and you know, not all cultures focus on on that mm-hmm. in, in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if the word that we use here. Is this kind of one that we would expect to use, or it really reflects the way that people thought about this, thought about this in Buddhist time—being, whether it be becoming or something else. I don't know. Well, a being here means something like a living being, or an, you know, an individual, or an entity. And you find every 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 culture has that concept. Yeah, but it's not necessarily related to the verb to be. Right? No. When in, in Pali, it's related to the, the verb to be tied up, to be caught up. Now, I think that's a pun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the basic idea is that there, you know, there's, there's, some, you know, there's an individual there that's, that you can identify as having sort of individual being <laughs> or individual existence. That, that's common to all cultures. And it's something you have to take apart. Because otherwise we just keep creating more beings. And then we suffer as a result. Yes? It seems a lot of this stuff is very esoteric and very cerebral. Mm-hmm. And more is the Give up everything and become a monk and even 
In everyday life, well, you look for where the suffering is, and whatever suffering you're causing yourself. You say, okay, maybe I can't put an end totally to suffering, but there are particular ways that I'm suffering right now that I can like, stop doing. It's not rejecting what one is, it's more rejecting that, what the things that you identify with that are causing suffering. You're realizing that a lot of your suffering is just that, it's self-caused by your attachment. Well, they, they provide you with the tools that you can take apart any form of suffering. Your boss yells at you, what is it? Okay, it's form. The sound is, is the form that comes by your ears. The feeling is your feeling of you know, dejection or whatever, or your feeling of hatred for the boss or whatever. And then you say, okay, I could suffer a lot over this, but I could just look at it just as aggregates, and that would let that particular incident of suffering go. And that way, they, they have, the world has less of a handle on you. And you maybe have less of a handle on the world. I think you have more. Because <laughs> if your boss can yell at you and you don't, you, you don't get upset. You get very disconnected. Not disconnected. I mean, you, you know that, okay, I, I should work in such a way that, you know, that pleases the people around here. But not to the extent that I can't sleep at night or that, you know, that I'm, I'm missing out on other important things in life. Gives you a better perspective. I mean, these these are tools that you can use in, to whatever extent you want to. And if you find that you're getting so disconnected that you're not even meeting your deadlines, then you better say, "Okay, I'm not using these tools very wisely, or the way I want to." Of course, I'm a very bad example for t trying to convince people that they can go all the way in the practice as lay people. <laughs> <laughs> There are other hands. Yes? Isn't this what I'm hearing in this question that I've heard in other questions also addressed in a particular teaching about there being poisons in certain aspects of as we reach for these understandings that they can also have their nihilistic side mm -hmm. this connection that maybe I'm not sure where that occurs in the teachings. I'm not sure. There is a passage where they talk about to compare the teachings to a snake. If you catch the snake in the wrong spot, it's going to turn around and bite you. And one of the biting places is if you take the teaching, say, on not-self, and saying, well, there is no self. And they say, well, if there is no self, what are we alive for? What are we living for? Why do we even bother practicing? Okay, that's grasping the snake by the tail. But if you understand the teaching on not-self, it's just that, to pry apart your attachment to particular things that cause you to suffer, then you're using the teaching in the right way. So part of it is taking the teaching and using it wrong. The other part is sometimes interpreting the teaching wrong. I mean, the Buddha never said there is no self. There have been thousands of, you know, thousands of years of Buddhist philosophy have said that, but when you look in the early texts, the Buddha never says that. So that's a case of taking the teaching and misinterpreting it. And then there's a case of a teaching that's properly interpreted, but then you apply it in the wrong place. So you have to be careful about that. That's why I made the point at the very beginning about understanding the questions that the Buddha is asking.
And if you understand the questions he's asking, then you use the, te- use the answers in the proper way. Question here? Yes. Yeah, going back to the <clears throat> top of page 12, where you're talking about the form, the sense of feeling, the sense of consciousness. I could apply the example that you gave about your boss maybe yelling at you, and maybe the form of it something that would upset you. So you might be somewhat obsessed with the form, and the feeling, the reaction that you have to it. How would that apply to consciousness? I'm so grappling with that. What would a person be like who's obsessed with consciousness? Well, you're obsessed with consciousness of something. And then it, it translates into the obsession with that particular thing that you're conscious about. There's one passage which I didn't include here, I wish I had, where the Sariputta says you can't really separate consciousness, feeling, and perception. They all come as a clump. So could you, would your example be um, you're obsessed with that or soccer or something? Would that be an example? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you, you, know, you enjoy your soccer consciousness. But in the case of the boss, okay, there's the feeling of, you know, why is my boss yelling at me? I'm doing everything I can. There's a perception that the boss doesn't care about you. Um, then all the constructs that you proliferate on top of that. And then the consciousness of this is that you, you, you just get obsessed with these things and you keep thinking about them and you keep cultivating that awareness instead of focusing on something else. Right. Remember, fabrication underlies all of these. You, you, you pay attention to boss consciousness, or, you know, how do you say that in English? I'm thinking in Thai right now. <laughs> in Thai, there's the word jainor, which literally means small hearted, which means the feeling of, you know, when you're feeling really bad because everybody's dumping on you. Self pity. Self pity, yeah. Self pity. Thank you. So you have your self pity consciousness, and you decide, okay, I'm going to drop that or obsessed with it. It's up to you. Okay. Yes? Well, before you, before you get to the mindfulness, there has to be a part of you that can disconnect for the part that feels like it's being injured by the boss. If you can step back a little bit, say, okay, there is a feeling of injury right here, but it's not me, it's not mine. Then I can just be mindful of this experience. But if you can't, if you can't perform that little act of disconnect, you really need some paper towels there, don't you? <laughs> But as long as you're identifying with that feeling that you're being mistreated, it's hard to be mindful of it. So there has to be that one quick element of disconnect. Okay, I don't have to identify with this feeling. I can just be mindful of it. So the kind of, you know, then you would use the kind of for that extent to, to dissociate from the, the, you know, the mind state that's going to get in the way of the mindfulness.
Yes. Patterns buried from the back. Yeah. They deal with it only in the sense that we have these patterns of behavior that we'll have to learn to see how, okay, as you repeat the pattern of behavior, you're causing yourself suffering. Now, there are two ways of dealing with that, as in psychotherapeutic way, is to go back and look, well, where did this pattern begin? And realizing it began in some situation which you have now, you know, very unskillfully applied to the present moment. And then your, your ability to let go of that pattern depends on you seeing how inappropriate that connection is from the past to the present moment. Whereas for the Buddhist approach, it's saying, well, look at it right now. It's not an appropriate pattern to do right here. You don't need to know where it started, because, of course, from their point of view, it didn't start when you were a child. Well, that's, that's the real question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for them, it's to say, if you can just see right now how inappropriate this pattern is, that it's causing yourself suffering, and you don't have to do it, and they give you training in other ways of reacting to the situation. But what about people who can't discern? Mm-hmm. Like people, for instance, who are in psychotherapy and clearly are unconsciously attached mm-hmm. to a childhood experience and they're repeating it over and over in their adult life, mm-hmm. and they can't see that. Okay. This is where a good teacher would come in. Yeah. I'm personally of the view that we in, we in the West have a lot of emotional scars from our childhood that need to be treated sometimes before we can start meditating properly. Because in, in Thailand, you would get occasionally people who were really whacked out <laughs> coming to the monastery. And my teacher, in his case, wouldn't even have him meditate. He'd have him do chores around the monastery and be helpful here, be helpful there. Because they're not ready to sit down with their demons. And John Swatman once made the comment that you know, people coming to meditation, if this is their first exposure to Buddhism, many times carry a lot of this emotional baggage that first has to be cleaned up by you know, learning how to be a generous person, learning how to be principled in your behavior, learning to observe the precepts. And as you build up the amount of self-control and self-esteem that come from the practice of generosity and the practice of the precepts, then it's easy to sit down with your meditation and start seeing these patterns. Because you have to have this, you have to have a basic inner sense of well-being in order to sit down and meditate properly. And so, without training in the precepts and without training in generosity, we use psychotherapy. So, the training in precepts and generosity is how Buddha would have addressed what we today call unconscious activity. He's kind of a behavioralist in that way. I'm just about running out of steam. So, give you a brief overview of the remaining material. Okay. Page 13. When the Buddha gives ways of taking apart the identification around feeling. <clears throat> okay. 
either he says you can identify with feeling as yourself, or say feeling is not myself, myself is oblivious to feeling. Or you can say neither is feeling myself nor is myself oblivious to feeling, but rather myself feels and that myself is subject to feeling. And the first objection he has to the first one is you only feel one kind of feeling at a time, so which feeling is yourself? Because each feeling changes from feeling to feeling to feeling. I go, this, is, this is a pretty miserable self you've got. <laughs> okay, the next, next objection, if you say, myself is oblivious to feeling, and as the Buddha says, okay, if nothing were ever sensed or experienced or felt at all, would there even be the thought that I am? How would you know this self that was oblivious to feeling? Or oblivious to experience in general? Some people might say you could assume it. It must be you know, something you would assume behind experience. But the question is, well, why would you want to assume anything that you can't experience? Where would the thought that I am occur? If the self was something that wouldn't, wasn't subject to experience. As for the one that says myself feels and that myself is subject to feeling, the objection here would be that, okay, if feelings were to stop in every way, then owing to the sensation of feeling, would there be the thought that I am? Well, no. So this shows how illogical the idea that, you know, I've got this self that is subject to feeling. Because feelings can come and go. And they can actually go totally. At that point, there would be no thought that I am. And then he says, okay, if you... If you don't cling to any of these ideas about the self, okay, they're not clinging, or not just the idea of the self, but you don't cling to any sense of self, either as something that is the feeling, or is oblivious to the feeling, or is a subject to the feeling. Then you don't cling to anything in the world. Not clinging, you're not agitated. Not agitated, you're totally unbound right within. At that point, you discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There's nothing further for this world. You know, if anyone were to say to such a person that the Tathagata, and that means anybody who's attained full awakening, exists after death, that would be mistaken. In other words, he doesn't think in these terms, either that the enlightened one or the awakened person exists, doesn't exist, both exist and doesn't exist, neither exists nor does not exist after death. And why is that? We're realizing that the, even the idea of existing and not existing is just a designation, it's just a category of language. Having directly known the extent of designation, the extent of the objects of designation, the extent of expression, the extent of the objects of expression, the extent of description, the extent of the objects of description, the extent of discernment, the extent of the objects of discernment, because even, even awaken is beyond discernment, okay? Knowing the extent to which the cycle revolves, having known that, the monk is released. And the view that having known these things, the monk, the monk released does not see, does not know. In other words, doesn't know what's beyond the level of, of language. That would be mistaken as well. So in being released, you're open up to something that's another dimension entirely. And you look back and you see that everything else you've been, you know, been talking about doesn't even touch this other dimension. That's why you want to let go of this sense of self, so you can touch that other dimension, be free of suffering. And right there, I run out of steam.
<laughs> Nancy. This is what? Wait or not? Yes, yeah. Does every moment have some feeling tone to it, or when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, is there nothing, or is there a feeling that is not pleasant and not unpleasant, but there's still feeling? The second one, that there's still feeling, but it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Yeah. So does every moment have a feeling tone? Yeah, either positive, negative, or neutral. Okay. okay. Anything else? The remaining material at the very end just give you an overview so you can take it home and read it on your own. Okay. You have two passages. One starts on page 20, the other starts on page 21. about people who try to define what the awakened person is after awakening, as existing or non-existing, as being the aggregates, as being in the aggregates, being elsewhere, being whatever, as totally being inappropriate. In other words, they don't pin down the notion of a, a being at all, even in the present life, to say much, much less about what happens after death. passage at the very end of page 21. Here's a monk who tries to turn the not-self teaching into a no-self teaching. Where he says, okay, so form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, fabrications and consciousness are not self. In that case, then what self will be touched by the actions done by what is not self? In other words, hey, if there's no self to experience all these things, I can do what I want. That's the implication. If this is not self and that's not self, and then what self is there? And if there's no self, hey, I can get away with anything because there's no self to experience it. And the Buddha, realizing with his awareness the line of thinking in that monk's awareness, addressed the monks. It's possible that a senseless person <laughs> would think in this way. <laughs> can you imagine what that would feel like? You're sitting there thinking these things to yourself, and the Buddha says, some idiot out there is probably thinking this right now. <laughs> And so what does the Buddha do? He goes back to that original set of questions that we talked about that were in the second, second sermon, which is you take all the things that you would identify with as self and you deconstruct the question, who am I? Say, is this me? No. Is for me? No. Is feeling? No. And the purpose of that is so that you take the mind to a state of non-attachment. So the Buddha isn't trying to explain the world without, without the notion of a self to explain it, but he's taken the concept here and using it to pry, people, pry loose your attachments to the different aggregates so that with a lack of attachment, a lack of clinging, there is release. So that's how the teaching functions. And rather than saying there's no self, you take these series of questions to get rid of your attachment. Passages 22 and 23 pages 22 to 23 have a little bit of discussion of consciousness without feature. The consciousness we tend so you couldn't point you couldn't point to. And then the very last passage on 23 talks about the awakened 
person, the Tathagata, it's a word for the Buddha here, who dwells with unrestricted awareness. They use the word jetasa, jetas, C-E-T-A-S, that's the word for awareness here. Free, dissociated, and released from form, feeling, perception, fabrications, from consciousness. This is one spot where the consciousness and awareness tend to part ways. Because here you have an unrestricted awareness. It's aware of these things, but not bound by them. And the image that they end with is, just as a red, blue, or white lotus born in the water, growing in the water, rises up above the water and stands with no water adhering to it. In other words, we start out with these khandhas, but then we rise up above them to the point where there's nothing adhering. That un unrestricted awareness doesn't adhere. So that's what the purpose of the teachings on the khandhas is. Remember, the Buddha had reached that point in his own awakening, and they looked at everybody else and said, how can I possibly get other people here? And then he came up with the teachings of the five khandhas as a way of analyzing the things that we cling to, that we, these things that we keep creating, 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 and then tie ourselves down to. And teaches us to take them apart in such a way that, well, first he teaches, them, teaches us to use them in such a way that we're in a position where we can take them apart, our passion and desire for them, and then be released. So that's the purpose of the teachings of the khandhas. It's an analysis of suffering for the sake of putting an end to suffering. Because the analysis itself is a type of action, and then we use that ability to analyze, to take apart our attachments. And then we take apart our attachments, and there's release. That's, that's what the teachings of the khandhas are all about. As the Buddha says, you know, the, all of his teachings have one flavor, and that's the flavor of release. And this is, if, if you want to understand these teachings, you always, always have to see how they relate to this process of bringing about release. So, I hope I've helped your understanding of the khandhas today. <laughs>